The yeah. only thing I know about Come Back to the Five and Nine Jimmy Dean, Jimmy Dean is that it has my favorite, the review of it, the capsule review of it by Pauline Kale has my favorite Pauline Kale quote, uh-huh. um, which is something I think about a lot, which is that um, it was... Uh, um, Altman's magic is so assured that he can turn fake poetry into real poetry. <laughs> Pauline Kale sometimes makes me want to throw myself off a cliff. Profane, yeah. sacrilege. But I, but she has a way with words sometimes. And uh, actually, she did audio commentary for the Criterion shortcut. Oh wow! La- laser disc that I guess the Kale Estate had them remove it from the DVD and Blu-ray. I, if they did a Blu-ray, I don't know. But it's, it's not on the, the DVD version. It's a, shame that, it's a shame that there were no such thing as... Like, they didn't even think to watch 16mm prints at their filmmakers' friends' houses and record themselves on tape. Like, it's a shame that commentaries just weren't a thing in the 70s. Oh, yeah. Well, some of those guys didn't even want to do them when they came about. I know that several directors tried to get Wells to do one for Kane when the first Criterion Laserdisc was Citizen Kane, and they were trying to get him to do a commentary. He's just like, you know what? I'm just tired of talking about it. Well, no, that's the thing. I want want Peter Bogdanovich's 1973 commentary of Citizen Kane. You know, like, I want want Martin Scorsese doing a commentary of of a Brian De Palma movie. Like, those guys, oh, the way they were watching movies and each other's movies, like I wish they were doing commentary then. <laughs> like I wish oh. that I wish that their unfiltered thoughts were recorded. That's the best thing about commentaries is that they're unfiltered and they're specific. At least the good yeah. ones are the the you know the Friedkin ones. He just sort of is slowly pitching the movie to you as if he's trying to sell you on the movie as you're watching it. And that's the most heartbreaking thing about those commentaries for Friedkin, because Friedkin in interviews is like a completely uh, honest, funny character mm-hmm. that his commentaries, which are essentially play-by-plays of the action on screen. I find I, I met him once at a screening of Cruising, and I almost said something to him about it, but I didn't. I didn't know if he was going to take offense at it, and I didn't. You know, I didn't think it was that important. Uh, but uh, it is odd that like someone that is that much of a character that does not translate to his commentary tracks. Yeah, I mean, I'm, uh, I'm Bogdanovich. I remember Altman had to have. Uh, I think it was the screenwriter for. Um, Altman kind of does the same thing sometimes, and Altman needed what I think his commentary track for Godsford Park was pretty good though, because he had the screenwriter there, sort of like asking him questions and interviewing him. Yeah. He hated doing them. Um, I don't know if you know that about Three Women was like, he was just like, man, I really don't want to do it. And like what they did was they they basically did an interview with him and then did some screen-specific things and then they just kind of cut together all the things that were most compelling about it, which is why it has less kind of gaps than like the Nashville or the MASH or... You know, because not, not all directors like enjoy doing them, and some of them just give up I, the process. I, if I made while. a movie like Three Women, I wouldn't want to do a commentary for it. <laughs> like, if, yeah. if, if you make a movie that the sort of the chief pleasure and is is sort of just what a mystery it is, um, the last thing I would want to do is ex- explain it. Actually, you know whose uh, commentaries, I know that you spoke about him on one of the other uh, episodes of it, but whose commentaries really are um, what turned me around on him was, uh, oh, what is his name? The, the guy that, um, it's on the tip of my tongue, he did uh, Hustle and Flow and Black Snake Mo. Uh-huh. Uh, um, oh, Craig Brewer. You know, 
Oh, uh, repeat it because you're oh, you just kind of Craig Brewer. Craig Brewer, yeah. Have you listened to his commentary yeah, tracks? They're, good. they're really good, and I I, I think um, I was in a I was in a period where I was I was lifting a lot of commentaries for movies that I would rent, and I would put them on my iPod and drive around to them like books on tape. Interesting. <laughs> and um, that's actually how I first got into the Craig Brewer commentaries because like I just I was I'm, th- I'm thinking like some film for MTV it's going to be just some kid who's like making a bunch of dumb references I'm going to turn this off after five minutes and it's just like who is this yeah. guy. <laughs> like, well, yeah, Craig, uh, Craig Brewer is, is such a fascinating director because um, he's just so authentic. Like, he just loves Memphis, and all of his fucking movies take place in Memphis. <laughs> and and he's yeah. and so like he's just a real guy with real life experiences, and that means that that adds so much. Um, even in a movie like the remake of Footloose, like that adds so yeah. much. Just that, like the remake of Footloose is probably more than any other movie in the last. 20 years other than very art house sort of dramas but more than any other mainstream movie in like the past 20 years it is about the south and it's well i guess i guess that and like friday night lights are the two things that are like about the south and it's very authentic about the south and it's just like this is what it's like to be in the south and these are the kind of people who live in the south and it's not condescending to them and it's not this or that it's it's and there's no villains really like like in the original footloose Everyone loves to talk yeah. about how crazy the original Footloose is because of the silly premise, but like that's one of the most human <laughs> of all of the '80s dance movies. <laughs> well, that's that. That I would not argue that. Mm-hmm. I, I think that like with um, with Brewer's career, it's like watching Black Snake Moan, which I thought was a really interesting film. I it makes me really sad that someone with that quirky and personal and original voice. Is whatever you know pros or cons there is you know to the Footloose remake. It's like he should be allowed to develop more original material like that. And I just feel like trying to work in the system that he is, like he's not encouraged to really take those chances. Like he's not going to make Paul Thomas Anderson movies. Yeah, you know. And I say that kind of in quotes, like just like you know, auteur works that aren't necessarily turning themselves into like a name brand in the way the Wes Anderson does where it's like variations to such a degree that you don't even need credits to, to identify the author. Um, I don't know. I feel like there's a missed opportunity with like someone that's not letting Brewer have a career like Rogues where you really just pursue the more uncommercial instincts and see what you get. I just, yeah, I think at this point he he films, he does a, he directs television um, stuff like that. I mean, when, but I mean, then again, like Craig Brewer, he's made movies that people like and are critically acclaimed. And Hustle and Flow was a big support. Like no one expect. I'm sure no one going into that project expected it to be an Oscar kind of a movie. No, let alone winning the first Oscar for hip hop song right. for a song with Pimp in the title. <laughs> there are tons. I'm sure he's had tons of offers, and the fact that he has sort of like even when it came to Footloose, he's like, all right, I have to completely rewrite the script. <laughs> that's why yeah. he and he saw something in that movie he could do and and he did it like every dance yeah. scene in Footloose is has a different emote like tells the story and has a different emotion even more so than the original movie like unfortunately the, the downfall of the remake of Footloose is that the lead is not nearly as charismatic as Kevin Bacon and the uh, uh, Miles Teller is a good replacement for uh, Chris Penn but that's about as far as the casting goes that's about 
the only thing that stands up to the original Footloose, but... Yeah, well, I don't know. I mean, I, I, Footloose, I don't think it's about... And it's not the kind of film that would, like, get critical notice because it's it's you know it's i mean the original footloose didn't either like mm-hmm. it's it's a it's a uh it's a mainstream crowd pleaser film like it's not meant for building a reputation as an auteur right um i don't know i just we were talking yesterday about the just the landscape of american film and uh i guess to some degree your pessimism about where it's all going to, to be you know, fair that, yeah for those who don't know uh this is the take two of the nicholas rogue podcast uh, the first one was marred with uh, technical difficulties, and off, and also just me screaming about uh, how Hollywood is doomed. <laughs> well, but it's, I think that you had some valid point. I mean, you were talking about uh, how Guardians of the Galaxy, for whatever strengths it had, was ultimately it falls well short of some great film. Yeah, well, yeah, it felt the Guardian C like. Something like Captain America, I can enjoy because, like, oh, that seems like a good version of a Marvel movie. Whereas, like, Guardians of the Galaxy, it elevated to a compromised James Gunn movie. <laughs> you know, like that's that's the problem with it is like it the parts that are identifiably sort of James Gunn's quirky sense of humor and his love of outsiders and stuff like that. Like the parts that are recognizably him are strong enough that the parts that are just two beefy supervillains talking on a meteor somewhere about how they're going to destroy the galaxy and all those, like, overly serious scenes and stuff like that. Those are just like, oh, someone someone put a bunch of bullshit in my James Gunn movie that I was enjoying. <laughs> and, of, and, of course, just the budget being what it is. The I mean, not that James Gunn has ever been particularly good. I, I remember even loving Slither when I saw it in theaters. I remember thinking that some of the action scenes were really poorly shot. Like, there's a scene where, like, possessed deer or whatever are attacking someone in a police station. It's all completely dark, and it's hard to see what's going on. And I'm not, like, saying, oh, they compromised James Gunn's vision when it came to the action scenes, but the action felt really generic in Guardians of the Galaxy. And, again, it's an action movie. Well, now, that is some fucked up shit. With a lot of the films that seem to be the, uh, the films that unite all of the cinephile friends of mine, not... not all of them, but most of them. Uh, Boyhood uh, is another one. I, they're, they're films that I can appreciate, but I feel like I'm on the outside of like a really big uh, crowd of people that mm-hmm. love these and are moved by these films. I I would not knock either one of them, but like I don't know for for some reason like the, the year in films for me it's like. I don't know that those are going to be on my list at the end of the well, year. Well, those are, those uh, are two. It's funny those two movies specifically are movies that I understand that because, well, for Snowpiercer, it was just so needed. It was, I needed to be in a theater full of people watching a movie like this that got all the beats right and experiencing that rush with the crowd. And I hadn't felt like that since The Avengers. And The Avengers isn't as good as Snowpiercer. Like, The Avengers has a lot of things I'm talking about, but it just, The Avengers just knows what its strengths are. And its strengths are the fact that somehow Marvel, through miracle of casting, has assembled the most charming actors of their generation, all in a right. single movie, being charming and funny towards each other. And it and it leans on that so hard. It's all about those characters, and it's all about the way they, inter- they interact in the Avengers. And so, mm-hmm. like, it just it was it felt so good to see the Avengers in a crowded theater, and it felt so good to see Snowpiercer. Snowpiercer isn't the smartest movie, 
It's not very subtle. It's kind of dumb. There's a lot of parts yeah. of it that are just like, okay, like I see the I see the class symbolism and stuff, but it's very ham-handed. It's not the most, uh, you know, it, it isn't like the most brilliant mainstream takedown. It's it's not certainly no something like Children of Men, which Children of Men works both as a as a thriller and as really um, strong political commentary. I, I would agree with you, yeah. and, but. Snowpiercer's just like, oh, I needed that. Um, yeah. Yeah, it reminded me a little bit of Gilliam for some reason. Yeah. Like, it reminded me of Brazil mm-hmm. or... or uh... The art direction is certainly 12 Monkeys and Brazil kind of inspired. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm certainly not trying to say that I didn't like Snowpiercer. Yeah. I think it's just... I think you talk about, like, um, you know, people's... Uh, just kind of like their the, the criteria kind of being lowered just because of what we're largely getting and I feel like you know that film as an action film I, I, I don't know if it's as exciting to me as like you know John Woo's The Killer was for say for an action sure. movie like where I, where I felt like really viscerally engaged but maybe it's just it's just maybe my taste is, is yeah. and, moving away and when from you that. say oh it, as an action movie it didn't stack up to John Woo's The Killer that's a pretty high bar but the reason that uh, I sort of connect Boyhood and Snowpiercer is I find neither of them unassailable. Like, Boyhood isn't... It's, it's brilliant in its conception. Um, I think most of the ways that Boyhood is brilliant is just the way it was conceived and Richard Linkletter and just the visceral thrill of watching someone grow up... Um, mm-hmm. That and watching the aging process, like you see movies, it's not the longest movie, uh, you know, and you yeah. see it's not the most epic movie as far as charting someone's life, but like movies usually just have a cut somewhere where it's like, well, this is the part where it's a child actor, and this is the part where it's Jamie Foxx as Ray Charles, and right, and the uh, just visceral experience of watching someone grow up and following their life, uh, it's. It was just so moving, and then everything in the movie is designed to support that. Like, everything in the movie is designed to support that sort of... As my, uh, Linkletter in, in interviews sort of denies that that he's is sort of playing with the boundaries between fiction and documentary, but I, I, I disagree with him. <laughs> I, think, I think he very specifically, he has them at a baseball game, and, like, if you go and look up, like... If, you were able to see who was playing, and you figure out a roughly what uh, year that uh, the base that baseball game scene is supposed to take place. You could probably look it up, and when you look up the box stats of that baseball game, it's probably going to line up with what Ethan Hawke said uh, when he gets home to his roommate, where it's like, "Oh yeah, they killed him in the second in- or the eighth inning or something like that." Like, there's just this level of documentary throughout the movie, and it all supports the visceral thrill of watching this person grow and in and it's smart in the way that it's like very modern the the way that um uh god what's the main character's name in boyhood i forget his name i don't remember either but the way like he starts to experiment with gender and play with gender and stuff like that like it's not the plot of the movie but it is just um it's it's very smart and modern and just that's just it's well observed in those kinds of ways which is like 
not only it, here are the things that are universal about growing up, no matter what age you are or when you grow up, here are the things that are specific about what it was like to grow up in this era, in the post-9-11 era. And um, it's, it, it's not unassailable in the way that it's not like, it's not like this is the best movie about life. Because everything you need to know about life is in boyhood. But it is right. such an exciting movie because it's just, uh, or at least I found it to be such an exciting movie because of just the the thrill of watching someone grow up on screen is just that strong and that amazing. Did you ever uh, did you ever watch the Up series? I know no. it does something very different. No, I, I I've uh, no, I haven't seen any of the Up series. I. I, I don't know if they have English subtitles, and I know that sometimes, uh, you, you know, with hearing, uh, I don't know if the accents might pose yeah. an issue, but if they... So, it's on Netflix, most of Netflix, or at least a bunch of the Up series on Netflix, and most of stuff on Netflix... It's all on there, yeah. Okay, yeah, most things on Netflix have subtitles. Okay, you might... At some point, when you have the time, yeah. it's, it, it's you, know, it, you know the documentaries. Once they get to feature length, are you know some of them uh, extend over two hours. But can that, I say something dumb? That, that's that's one that I think that you would really respond to. Um, sure. Can I can I say something dumb? What's that? I the up series doesn't sound like interesting to me. Like it's you. They randomly pick these people, and you follow their lives, and it's like. If, if you don't know what people, kind of people they're going to grow up to be when they're seven, like, uh, what, you know, like, surely not all their lives are that interesting, and surely after a certain point their lives sort of stabilize, and, I mean, the... the, the I, I don't want to spoil anything, sure. but but some people's lives do get dull, and some, uh, some become kind of fascinating, uh, and you, 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 I don't know what to say more than that, like, it's, I guess it would sound kind of dull on paper to describe it, but if you if you're not engaged by like the third film, don't go forward. But I would think that you would find it just I don't know. I think there's at least one character that you would find really compelling, and then the other ones. I mean, you talk about the thrill of watching someone grow up, and you really are. It's not the, quite the same thing with this, but you do see these children what adulthood does to them. Yeah. Uh, and what the class system in England does to them. And oh, okay. so is it is it very specifically like he picks people from different classes and? Yes. Okay. Yeah. On some level, on some level, there is definitely a political axe to grind. That with. that instantly. I, I don't know why I assumed there wasn't something like that. I guess I just I hadn't read extensively about it and I hadn't heard anything about that. But yeah, no, that instantly makes it sound more appealing to me. <laughs> Okay, yeah. Yeah, because that's definitely a major component. Of yeah, it. I, I didn't know there was something like that it was hanging on. I thought it was just about... Like, it sounded almost a little milquetoast to me. Yeah, well, they don't really try to sell English class issues to Americans as far as, like, a hook to get Yeah, to sure, them. sure. Well, that's, you know what? That's because I'm not in marketing. That was your first mistake. Um, and I, I try to, like, whenever I see anything with, like, you know, father-son relationship or time travel, I always send Jim an email. Yeah. It's like, hey, I saw another one that you might want to check. I have a, I have a friend who both hated, uh, who hated upstream color and computer chess for roughly the same reasons, like just finding them uh-huh. in, impenetrable and everything. And so, like, I've seen them talk about other movies similarly since and just been like, oh, I should, I should check that movie out. Yeah, those were actually both on my list of my favorites for last year, uh, computer chess and upstream. Yeah, those, I uh, think color. about... 
I Computer Chess wasn't my favorite movie of last year, um, but other than like Upstream Color, like I think about Computer Chess more than anything. <laughs> I think about Computer I Chess did. so much. <laughs> It's, it's definitely something that, like, if someone writes a book on computer chess, it really should be you. <laughs> you do have an active imagination. But calm yourself. We're about to participate in a seance. Um, you know what film um, that is totally off the radar, and it was one of my favorite films of last year, and I'd be curious to hear what you would take uh, on it if you ever can find it, because um, I don't think it's streaming anywhere. But Animals is the title. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a Spanish film. Uh, it's, I think it's the first feature from that director, and it feels like uh, like a vaguely homoerotic Spanish coming-of-age surreal dark film with a talking teddy bear and school shootings and garage rock. And it's it's the kind of film that makes me feel old because Virgin Suicides and Donnie Darko are like older films of influence for this young director. Oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, that's interesting. But uh, it's the kind of film that you watch it and you're like, like films like this can exist and be totally unknown in America. Yeah. And yet, if I don't know the Weinstein Company put this out, it would be like playing in dorms right now. Sure. <laughs> but but it's just it's not gonna. Because there's just so much material and there's so few outlets of influence. Um, and we were talking yesterday about like just uh, you know distribution. I-, I feel like the streaming thing is going to kill all the remaining art houses within ten years. I think it's just, just going to be streaming. Bill, do you, but it, uh, do you think it will kill off the kind of movies that get made, or just sort of the buildings? I don't know if it will kill off the movies that get made because if you can make money, like all right, like something like *Nymphomaniac*, I think probably made more money from the video on demand rentals than from the theatrical releases. But what that number looks like, I don't know. Like something like *Snowpiercer* made five million dollars, and they talk about that like that's a really good thing. But it's like five million dollars is fucking nothing. Yeah, that movie costs (laughs) a lot more. Yeah, like, I, I, like I don't understand to... how any movie makes money. Any any movie that isn't a Marvel movie or a big comedy or something, I don't understand how or a super cheap horror movie that gets in every multiplex. Like I don't understand how it makes money other than just the idea that it's an investment that will make the money in perpetu- in perpetuity. Like just just like yeah. eventually Netflix will want this back on there again, and then they'll pay for another three months of having this on there and. It's just it's about assembling a library of films as opposed to uh, a library of sort of content as opposed to uh, uh, you know releasing a product that's consumed in mass. Well, have you heard the theory already about like what the cause of Hollywood's slump and then basically a trickle down into killing everything is the DVD market collapsing. Um, had the seismic effect on everything else because it made all the studios more risk-averse because a very dependable source of profits, right. the ancillary market, was all of a sudden had the legs cut out from under it. And so that meant that the mid-budget film was suddenly a very big risk. And so you can invest in paranormal activity sequels that cost about you know whatever they cost. And you can invest in the mega-budget blockbusters because... 
there's a certain kind of like business major macho gambling thing like let's bet it all yeah. on a 200 million dollar Captain America movie <laughs> like like there's a certain kind of but but like something like sideways is seen as irresponsible um because that's not going to translate to other countries so well it's dialogue it's character it's cultural nuance it's like it's the odds of it making 20 million back it's like it's not interesting to make your 20 million yeah. back like who cares um and that's where it becomes dangerous for you can't have a woody allen or a robert altman or a scorsese or a tarantino yeah uh, i mean without some kind of source of capital to invest I I, in some in that way i think like i always think about slither as just like this milestone of like, wow, Universal put $30 million into this movie. And that was like the last major studio that ever put anything into an original movie with that kind of tone and personality. I can't think of a, a, of a comparable movie to Slither that got made by a major studio. Like, Scott Pilgrim had a built-in audience, a built-in fan base. It had a built-in fan base for its director. Uh, and that still was considered yeah. a... Uh, yeah. Like, whereas like Slither was just like... It was an expensive movie, but it... it Certainly didn't make its money back in the theater. No. Um, it was crit- you know, it was acclaimed, but it it got destroyed by that video game horror movie with uh, with uh, uh, what's Malcolm in the Middle's name? Oh, oh, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, um, I yeah, I Frankie remember. Muniz. Like, there's yeah. a video like you die in the game, you die for real life. PG-13 horror movie, and then that that came out the same weekend as Slither, and that made like three times as much as Slither. Well, now, that is some fucked up shit. We talked about this a little bit yesterday, but, like, about, like, the, um, this kind of wave that I, I perceive it as a wave. It's probably just my imagination, but, like, these art films that are kind of dressed up as genre films and, you know, it's things like Barbarian Sound Studio or, uh, uh Strange Color of Your Body's Tears or... Drive. Uh, you know, Drive even, yeah. I mean, I saw Drive in a multiplex, and that audience was ready to like burn it down. Sure. Like it was that well received. <laughs> um, that, well, that the, that was the movie that had the lawsuit where the woman yes. sued because it wasn't like Fast and the Furious. Only imagine if they had uh, shown them uh, Only God Forgives instead. What would yeah. happen? <laughs> um, but I think that like those kind of risks are necessary for the genre to move forward. Otherwise, you're just kind of reiterate. I mean, those the rem- what what you're feeling. I think we talked about this a little bit, like with the remakes. Um, like, do you feel like that trend is harmful for the horror movies, or it's neutral? I think it's or- absolutely harmful. I, I I feel the same way about remakes as the way about uh, as just all movies being based on existing properties, which is. If the studio owns the character of Chucky, then someone could have a great killer doll movie that they could turn into a child's play movie. They just change a couple of the details or proper names around. It's like, this would make a great child's play movie. But that director has to deal with a conglomerate that owns the the character of Chucky. And Chucky is an intellectual property. So they're going to stick their fingers in. Like, James Gunn, on his own, could have made this wonderful sci-fi comedy that it's not quite Buckaroo Banzai, but it could have had that kind of flavor to it. But instead, because it's because Marvel owns the rights to all these characters, they have a say in how these characters are portrayed, and they have a say in what the kind of universe these characters exist in, and what can happen and what can't happen. And they have a say in, like, well, it has to tie into these movies, 
and so this wonderful movie got turned into this good movie. <laughs> you know, like, and and I you know I think Guardians of the Galaxy is really good. I really do. Um, but it's just this idea that it's like the best you can hope for is that you you can't think that Ryan Johnson will make the equivalent of Brick when he makes a Star Wars movie. The best you can hope for is that he either has an idea that fits exactly into their game plan or that they don't interfere too much with him when he makes his Star is, Wars movie because it, is Lucas producing that? I don't I don't know what George Lucas's involvement in any of that is anymore. I don't I don't really follow follow cinema news. But I, it's just like yeah, Ryan Johnson to me was the guy. Like Ryan Johnson was like, "All right, here he he's making these genre movies. He's making Brick and Brothers Bloom, but they're so him and they're so full of personality and they're so he's such a well-known presence and that like Edgar Wright he must have been offered a million big budget uh, hot properties that that he clearly must have turned the fact that he wasn't doing that kind of movie he clearly turned them down because he wanted to make you know because he wanted to make the movies he wanted to make and if that meant he directed one of the greatest TV series of ever yeah he's going to direct some great episodes of Breaking Bad you know like he he, yeah. he found other outlets and he goes no I'm not going to sell out and it's like Edgar Wright, I'm, I was so happy when he got kicked off of Ant-Man because that means he fucking fought them and he just walked. <laughs> and yeah. that means that, that Edgar Wright is not going to water down his image. You know, Ryan Johnson may or may not. You don't know. I don't know. And I'm not, I yeah. don't think Ryan Johnson is, is nearly as great a filmmaker as Edgar Wright. But I do think, like, I just hold out such hope for these people that they are going to be, you know, like, that if they flirt with working with mainstream Hollywood, that they're going to do it like Scorsese. And it's like, sure, they're going to make it the color of money and they're going to dabble in, in uh, Cape Fear and stuff, but it's only to get the movies they want made. And eventually they'll become a name like, I don't know, Christopher Nolan became a name and think, look how much of his career he wasted making Batman movies. <laughs> Yeah, well, the thing with the Batman movies is, like, you think about, like, how much great stuff we got out of Altman just because of MASH. Yeah. Because MASH was the only thing that was yeah, MASH popular. Was it. But MASH wrote the check for, like, a string of masterpieces that's untouchable. I mean, he was the best director of the new Hollywood. I, and it's all because MASH basically just made him, because the budgets were low. So if the Batman movies allow Nolan carte blanche to make... I don't know what he'll make, but like, I mean, you would think that that will carry over in a way that is much more profound than like Stranger Than Paradise gives Jim Jarmusch money. Yeah. <laughs> or, you know, but the thing, I mean, but, or Blue Velvet gives David Lynch But money. it could also you know, like, just, I don't know, like, I don't know, I think Inception, <laughs> I, I think all of the faults of Inception feel like Christopher Nolan's faults and not a studio intruding's faults, you know? Oh, no, no, that's definitely, like, like yeah, that's 100%. So, true. like, I, Inception doesn't feel like a compromised movie in that way. So, like, Christopher Nolan's one of the few that's living the dream. I guess, I, guess I, I just always, I just holistically, for everything in this world, <laughs> my philosophy is just that money is the ruiner, and you have to get close to money to get things made. You can't be an artist if you are living on the streets because you can't afford rent. You know, like, it, 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 to bring it down to painting. And cinema is one of the more expensive arts there is, so... Yeah. Well, you know, a friend of mine made a feature film be because he met somebody that was a friend of a family, I guess, who just bankrolled the entire feature. What? And it was less than a million dollars. It was like... 
I forget what the budget was. It was maybe a couple hundred thousand dollars. More money than I'll ever have. But, you know, very small compared to even, you know, the computer chess level, probably, of of a budget. But you could make a feature on it. You know, it it will look like a movie. It will have, you know, all of that. You You can do it. And that's with just, you know... That's with that small amount of money. I, I, I guess once you get you bring unions into, I don't. You probably read the Lloyd Kaufman book. Like you go union, you're looking at a million dollar right. minimum kind of budget. Like it, it's harder. It, it you can make films more cheaply than ever before, but the distribution is really where it becomes problematic. I still kind of am surprised that cellular phone cameras and YouTube hasn't engendered any appreciable new wave. Yeah. I find that baffling. I, I, I do too. That's honestly one of the most thrilling things about computer chess for me is that it was this viable movie shot on this video equipment that looks nothing like film. And it's and like part of the part reason it's compelling is that it's evocative of an era, but it's also just... It, it made me realize, like... I, I think if people got over that idea that they want their movies to look as good as Jaws or as Fellini or, you know, whatever their favorite, whatever their, the ideal version they're shooting for. Like, if they could just yeah. get over that and just realize that people are used to watching things shot on cell phones for hours a day, you know, like, people are used to watching Vines and they've internalized that, that they won't instantly reject the idea of seeing a movie shot on an iPhone. Well, it'll come. The thing is that, like... Things, techniques that remind you that you're watching a movie are inherently experimental. Whereas the, the the more that you're able to forget you're watching a movie, the more it's commercially. Uh, I, I don't know if entertainment is always the right word. I mean, that's the thing. With like, say, like the found footage horror movies. I mean, the the reason that those work as well as they do is because there's no artifice uh, and they simulate reality to such a degree that you forget you're watching a movie even more so than something as raw as, you know, Texas Chainsaw Massacre or Last well, the fun, the funny, or Cannibal Holocaust or The whatever. funny thing about that is they, there's so much, I mean, if you, I mean, ideally, I know, I know you're speaking just ideally as a genre and compared, yeah. Oh, yeah, and compared to the average uh, horror movie, a found footage movie removes artifice, but if you watch a, like, I was watching this found footage movie, The Devil's Do or whatever. It's one of the, it's actually, it's the worst movie I saw this year. Worst yeah, year. I've not seen it. It can't be worse than Devil's Not. Uh, it, it might not be, but uh, <laughs> it's pretty bad. And it's like a found footage movie that cuts to different camera angles during, <laughs> like, a scene that ostensibly you're just watching someone holding a camera. It cuts to different angles, like... Yeah. Like, it... And, like, there's always audio as if every single human being on this earth has a body mic on them. Like, like, Yeah, I mean, there's definitely more bad fan footage horror movies, I'm sure, than good ones. It sounds to me like you're talking about the Antichrist. Well, perhaps I am. Um, Inland Empire almost feels like the sour answer to Mulholland Drive in a way. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, it's it's that same kind of, like, what is reality, California neo-noir kind of thing. But But it's... it's flipped inside out. You, you know, I don't know. It's. I, I went to a thing on Lynch the other night um, called Lynch 101 where it's like different local writers talking about each of the features and then they were kind of intercut with commercials and short films that he had done. Um, it was pretty interesting. Premonition um, of an Evil Deed is still one of my favorite David Lynch movies. 
they showed that, and I thought of how much you liked that yeah. film because because uh, I, I remember when you guys were prepping for that, and I knew that you hated some of the David Lynch films already. I'm like, oh man, this is gonna be like the Hal Hartley episode where Patrick's just like trashing the director. I like the entire episode, but uh, yeah, no, it's that that I that's actually one of. Uh, I mean, I definitely love that one. Also, um, I I prefer some of the features to it, but uh, what was I gonna say to you though? Um, uh, found footage. Oh, what I was going to say about like, I think it, what, what film is coming to now, at least as I get older, it feels like, it almost feels like when you were collecting punk rock or alternative kind of records pre Nirvana, yeah. um, where it's like, it just requires more work yeah. <laughs> because the distribution is like not as good, but it's still, it's still out there. And the thrill of the hunt element is kind of back for me a little bit just because I can't trust that it's going to wind up in a theater near me, even because Philly is not, I, I moved out of Philly, but it's still like, you know, right up the you know road, mm-hmm. essentially. Uh, but a lot of the best stuff I see is not even going to come there. Uh, yeah, well, I, I, that feels liberating almost. Like I, uh, I remember um, me and Regina, we went to this, uh, the Dissolve had this reading at this bookstore and uh, I think it was Scott Tobias. He had something about sort of, you know, it's a sort of eulogy for the death of film and just eventually movie theaters will become just further and further removed from what he thinks of. What? He's such a grump. It's so cute. No, yeah, Regina's laughing because Scott Tobias comes across as such a, such a cute, grumpy old man when it comes to that. Um, and, sure. like, my re- and I remember, like, you know, after every reading they had Q&A and I, like, my response to that was just sort of like, I've seen more great films on YouTube because that's what that's the only place I can watch short films, and if, yeah. and it's if it allows me to see great films, then it is a good model of distribution, <laughs> you know. And like there there's certainly yeah. you know ideal ways that you can watch movies, and ideally you're going to be there day one on a pristine print, uh, the first time it's run, and in a perfect theater with perfect sound and everything. But like the best models of distribution are the ones for me that. Uh, that distribute the movies that are good, and just the and just the idea of me getting into short films uh, this past year has just been the idea of okay, well, if money is the ruiner of art, well, where is where do the money men really don't give a shit? And that's that's short films. Like uh, all short films oh, are yeah. just financed by like colleges and stuff, uh, or parents, or yeah. Well, the thing with a short film is that festivals, you can't always trust the selection process because a lot of it is determined by either uh, films that feel like tryouts for Hollywood careers or or they feel like they're selected because of what they're about, not how they're about Mm -hmm. them. And that's where it becomes, I mean, ideology-driven cinema is almost completely absent from multiplexes. So I understand why that's going to feel like, you know, heavenly, you know, on, on the independent circuit. But it's like, it's, it, it feels limited in just in my own, like, experience with what gets in. And I, I don't go to a lot of short, fest, you know, short film festivals, but what I have seen, it feels like there's, there's flaws and there's, and there's local favoritism also. Um, the way I watch short films is I literally just watch them at random. I I will often go on Letterboxd 
I'll find, I'll pick a, I'll go to browse through films, I'll go to a specific year, and then genre, I'll select short films, and then I'll click around on the tiny icons of the movie posters until I find one that seems sort of interesting, and I read the two-sentence synopsis, and then you go on YouTube and you search Bug Crush 2003, um, and then I saw Bug Crush, and Bug Crush is this amazing short horror film, and it was by the guy who went on to make the Ruins, which is a movie that I've heard people defend as like an actually pretty interesting small uh, mainstream horror movie. Have you? Seen no, it? I haven't. I saw it and I thought it was. I thought it was okay. Not like not great. Like it, I, I didn't go in with high expectations, and I don't remember thinking it was anything special. And then, yeah, I've been hearing, I've been hearing since then that it's this kind of sleeper film I'm like really the ruins so like, yeah. I, I actually it's one I want to see I can't I mean see. the thing that makes Bug Crush interesting is Bug Crush is sort of about this gay teenager and this new kid comes to town and and this gay teenager he's completely introverted and he's a goody two shoes and this and this new guy who's nice to him is this bad boy and like you, the first time we meet him he's being reprimanded by a teacher for smoking in front of the school and it's and but the pace and the tone of it is totally like this languid and it's it sort of feels was okay i think it was mike d'angelo uh mike d'angelo made a list of his like 101 favorite movies of the decade uh in 2011 and it was like from so year of 2000 to year 2009 or something like that and he just and he and brick was on there and he described brick as representing adolescence as free-floating bewilderment and I can't remember the other word, but just the idea, and that, that really struck with me because, number one, that is a great way of describing Brick, but also that's a great way of describing adolescence, is just this idea of everything is just up in the air and things are kind of happening at their own weird pace that you can't control and there's just this weirdness that will last for days about an event that happened days ago and and Bug, I mean, Bug Crush isn't a like the greatest movie I've ever seen, but it captures that sort of weird feeling of like you're with friends of friends, and then suddenly you're in a friend of a friend's car driving to this friend of a friend's house, and you realize that everyone you're with you don't know, um, and and they're like just and maybe they're all smoking pot, and you've never smoked pot before, and they pass the joint to you, and it's this weird just sort of like you hyper focus on on the pipe as it's passed to you or this or the joint as it's passed to you and you're like, here it goes and time kind of slows down and you are driven by pressure of liking this person or sometimes you're driven by pressure of being attracted to this person or sometimes you're just driven, driven by pressure of wanting to do the thing that you think you're supposed to do because you're a teenager and it sort of captures that feeling really well and then it goes in a really dark, abstract place and I don't think... I think the ending is a little... Like, it's a little overly cynical and a little overly dark as sort of a, just like, look how harsh this movie is. You know, it kind of feels like that. Like, it doesn't feel 100% like an honest, as honest, 100% honest as everything that came before it. But as just a capturing of that and capturing of that dread and building that dread and using that the format of a horror movie, it's just like, and it couldn't work as a feature film. I mean, it could probably if the director was really amazing, but like, it would be really hard. But as a 16-minute short film, it's just perfect. And I found that completely by random. And when you go into a movie with no expectations and no idea where it's going to go, and the movie that you go into like that 
is that film, like, that just, well, that's, I'm good for four months. Like, I can watch four months of short films that I'm like, yeah, whatever, uh, until I can find that next one that just hooks me like that. Um, where, so, how, where did you read that De Palma listens to podcasts about him? That was like, um, on the an episode of The Projection Booth, one of the hosts of, is it Film, Film Geek, something or like, another podcast that I've checked out, the two of them were talking about how uh, he had checked out their Phantom of the Paradise episode and, like, their De Palma. Like, I guess one of them had done, like, a whole thing on De Palma with people like Keith Gordon kind of chiming in. And then the other one had done, like, a full-on episode just on Phantom of the Paradise. And uh, it had gotten back to them both that De Palma had listened to them. Like, he didn't contact the podcast or right. anything, but people that know, he does listen. So I was telling Jim, it's just like, the odds that he actually checked out your podcast because... It's one of the only ones that comes up about just him, are actually a lot higher than you probably. Yeah, thought. I mean, it's if he's <laughs> God, that's weird to think. It's weird. I mean, he there's no way he got through that whole thing. I would think number one, he just I don't know. Maybe he finds it actually. He might just find it funny. He's been controversial yeah. since before we oh, were. No, born. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not implying <laughs> like he would get offended and stop listening in a huff. But I think he might just find us too yeah. moronic. Hey. What's the idea of this rust Hey, what's the idea? You're trying to ruin my business? What's the idea? I lost my balance. Hey, what's the big idea anyway? Well, did, did you find the Rogue films, like, did, did you feel that they were attempting to tackle big ideas? or, or I, I, Obviously, they're dense in terms of, like, the amount of information in them. But whether or not they're shallow or deep, like, is very subjective. Did you find that... They were the ones that you found exhausting, like performance or the man who fell to earth. Did you feel like there were ideas that you weren't getting, or you thought that they were just like too in, too incoherent to really engage with? What was, it was what was it that was turning you off? Probably the latter. It was I'm, okay. I usually I try to give the benefit of the doubt uh, to movies like that, and I can assume that man who fell to earth must have something to say. But I could. It was so hard to engage with. I found. It's. I mean, the thing about all rogues movies is they don't. They aren't. They're, they're the least plotty movies I've ever like outside of <laughs> Kelly Reichard. But Kelly Reichard, she makes very simple movies that fit the lack of like plot. But right. Uh, but like his movies, like performance is uh, violent gangster gets out of hand, has to lay low. Right. That's all of the events. <laughs> That's. Well, it's it's not just that because it's. I mean, as you as you know, having seen it, I mean, it's also about, um, it's about identity. It's about you know through the use of uh, drug experimentation. Like it's ambiguous, but it could be like a possible. Uh, by the end of it, it may be that there are two personalities in one body. It's it's very ambiguous, but what's happening in those last scenes is you know open to debate but i think that i mean it's it's obviously commenting on identity and identity construction uh, i mean you can see with all the shots of the mirrors and uh, I mean, performance i'll be honest with you is a film that 
I don't love it as much as its fans, and I don't dislike it as much as its detractors, and it has a lot of both. Mm-hmm. Um, like, it's one that I... Like, you talk about The Long Goodbye and not always remembering the story. Like, that's a film that, like, every time I go into performance, I don't always remember everything that oh, I, uh, I saw last time hard. that I it, saw. It's so disjointed. Like, trying to remember yeah. all of the bits and pieces. Like, to me, performance felt like a more... Like... It's almost, it, it has the same formal operating uh, procedure as something like head, but oh, yeah. but in a way different way. Like, I mean, I, was, I kept thinking about Richard Lester when I was watching, because uh, you had said that uh, Rogue had edited one of Lester's movies. Well, no, no. What, what, what it is is that Rogue's, like, trademark editing style, I think he takes it from Lester uh-huh. and he takes it from Camel, because Camel's actually more... The author of performance than Rogue. And, and uh, Camel is, is the. Donald Camel was the co writer, co director. Like, he was like this painter, like British invasion scenester that had, like, he brought more of the kind of, uh, like, the heady mysticism that performance has, and, like, all the literary references. Like, there are references to, to Borges, and, like, all these things that. It operates on several levels, and depending on like how many levels you can take in, I, I can't take them all in. I'm not as educated in all of the the references that are going on in performance. I, I find it, you know, um, I find it interesting when I watch it. Yeah. But I, I, but it's it's I, I know that there's more to it than I am grasping when I watch it, and I, I know that uh, I worked for Criterion for a few months. And I remember one of the producers there, uh, I overheard a conversation with her and the head of Criterion, and they were uh, asking her, like, if you could have your druthers and, and uh, produce any film for Criterion, what would it be? And she said, performance. And I always just, but Warner Brothers controls it, right. and they have kind of a weird love-hate relationship with it. They never seem to properly do it on DVD. Um, and they actually sat on it for a couple of years trying to figure out what to do before they, they put I, it out. I, the I, can't, I can't blame them. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know what, what? What do you do with a problem like performance? I well, you know, I mean, they they. I think they forced them to recut the original version, and I don't, I don't even know what that would have looked like if that if the version that we have now is the compromised, like more commercial version. Um, but I know Todd Haynes ranks it as one of the ten best films ever made. But I don't know if what he gets out of it is the fact that he grew up with it when it was like the rare film to be that gay friendly or that drug friendly um yeah and you know it might all seem very tame now i know that you were commenting on facebook about how the drug element was kind of boring well i Um, it's i'm it's not necessarily tame it's it's certainly not tame there's i mean i find there's a lot in nicholas rogue movies i didn't finish in insignificance because frankly the first major scene in it is it feels like a high school play in which someone has written Einstein and Senator McCarthy having an argument and it just feels like some like some kid who's really into his history class like this is what he would write for his creative writing class the next period right um right. like oh yeah well what if all these uh, famous 50s people got together but in insignificance in the scene where uh, the Senator McCarthy stand in gets off the elevator there's like this crazy weird music playing and there's just like this crazy drum track going on and you can't tell like Oh, is this coming from? Because it takes place in a hotel. Like, oh, is this coming from like one of the adjacent yeah. rooms? 
or is this like uh, you know not not part of the reality? And then is it? And but it, it just keeps playing. It's not like his introduction music because it just keeps playing during their conversation, and it just kind of fades off on its own. There's a lot of aggressive uh, tactics. Uh, nervy is a word I saw used yeah. to describe him. I think that that fits because it's not necessarily like uh, edgy in the way you think of like edgy. Like oh yeah, pushing all the buttons, and this is gonna like purposely trying to offend people. It's not edgy in the way that yeah. a natural born killer is edgy. It's nervy and that yeah. you never get comfortable. So in that way, performance definitely isn't tame, but I just think dramatically, <laughs> if you know a character is, has one, no major motivation, and two, is going to be hallucinating, it's just a dramatically inert thing to happen in a movie. Now, if, if yeah. the guy's hallucinating or if the guy's tripping balls and then he finds out that his friend is in his house making calls on a phone that's bugged, <laughs> talking about <laughs> private details, and he has to crawl to his car because he can't move his limbs, suddenly that's a drug scene that's very entertaining and has that tension into it, and it becomes very dramatic. But just watching people on drugs tripping and listening to sitar music and, like, oh, there's a Greek story or there's the man on the mountain, like... It just yeah. It's it's the it's one of the more tedious things I think that can be in a film. Yeah, well, I mean that's that's totally fair. I I don't know that my first my first impression of performance was the most positive either, but uh, it's definitely one that I I do like more than you, uh, and I, it's one that I. I, know, I watched it again recently for this podcast, and uh, it's it's still. I don't know. There's still something I find intriguing about it, but I don't like it the way that I like The Man Who Fell to Earth, uh, which I, I'd be curious to hear. Well, we could go in chronological order. I think it's only... I think I think it would only be fitting for... Actually, for Rogue, what would happen is I would just <laughs> cut out important parts of this conversation, and listeners would have to just use context clues to desperately try to guess what happened in between edits. Well, it's it's funny. I read uh, I read Rogue's autobiography, mm-hmm. um, and uh, he jumps around in time in his own uh, chapters of it. Like that's just how his mind works. That's... And what's funny about it's what's funny about it is that the editing style really just reflects. It's like not him trying to make the material like purposely more difficult. I think I think it's just like he's trying to give it the feeling of of a remembered thing and the way that the mind processes a memory. Is not always linear. That, but I mean, I've read, that, that, I've that read feels this. particularly true about Walkabout. Walkabout has yeah. these sort of moments where things don't line up, and Walkabout feels very much like a memory. Yeah, yeah. I think they comment on that. Um, I think Jenny Auguter does in the commentary track saying that. But it's it's not. It can't all be her memories no. because there are sequences that don't involve her. I actually watching it again. I watched it a couple times for this. Um, that scene where the men are like leering at the woman while they're setting up the balloons. <laughs> the weird British uh, co- comedy tele, like the weird Benny yeah. Hill moment in the middle of this yeah. movie. Yeah, and I was I was waiting to hear what you thought of that because I don't think that scene really fits no. at all. And I'm trying to think like what I, I all I could attribute it to was just again Nicholas Rogue won't let you stay comfortable. He won't let even you even like he will purposefully break this kind of dreaming lyrical. You know, like this is this isn't a picnic at Hanging Rock where the tone and and the pacing is sort of steady throughout. Like 
it, it, it jumps even within its sort of uh, meditations on you know civilization versus nature and and racism and colonialism and stuff like that even within that it it won't allow itself to be one thing it'll jump to this bizarre like that's the moment that most felt to me like a richard lester comedy like how we won the war or how we won the war or something like that like uh it's it, or, well i i've heard i've heard it said that um what its purpose is is to show that just how absurd sexuality can be in the quote-unquote civilized world that the children are kind of away from and, you know, commenting on just, I mean, I don't know. I'm trying to think, does it follow the first kind of implications of like a sexual tension between the Aborigine and the girl? I can't remember. I mean, it's, it's definitely comes after sort of the first implications. I mean, the first implications though come pretty immediately when she sees him. There's just longing shots where she's looking at his his back and his legs and. Well, she checks out his ass the way her dad does right before he shoots at them. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, it's all right. So hold on, the... let's let's uh, yeah, let's go ahead okay. and intentionally torpedo this. I want to jump back. What uh, yeah. to performance? What to you, because to me these are very similar movies, what to you makes The Man Who Fell to Earth, which you you prefer to performance, what do you think is like sort of the key difference in those movies? Or at least why do you think you respond more to The Man Who Fell to Earth than performance? Well, I I think it might be something as simple as, uh, well, first of all, the the Bowie character, I find... Uh, more compelling because he's he's both kind of kind and sweet, but also kind of emotionally really unmoved by anyone he engages with. Like everybody's life is being changed by him, but he's just kind of on this kind of like somber mission that he's ultimately going to fail at because he's just not that uh, equipped to deal with the uh, the shady behavior of humans. Right. <laughs> uh, I, I find that kind of comp- I mean Bowie. As, as a movie presence, I find compelling anyway, and that that probably just lends. Uh, I, I find him more compelling than Mick Jagger. What, uh, what about Art purely... Garfunkel? Art Garfunkel is a whole other conversation, which we'll get to. But the uh, with Man Who the Earth, I think, I think it's because the structure. Well, it, I don't know if the structure is more bold than performance, but it feels maybe because the scope is bigger, and maybe because the. The way Americana is rendered strange, I find I, I just I'm, I'm drawn to that. That I, that first I, image when he wanders into town and he sees that giant inflatable house with a giant clown face like leering at him is one of the is the, the one-two punch of just the the drunk uh, Carney, I guess. Yeah. And uh, and that sort of I'm guessing carnival ride like bouncy house sort of thing, yeah, uh, is it's just like wow, like that it's a really potent image and it's also just like a perfect sort of like your introduction to America or to humanity, whichever at that point in the movie you don't know what uh, the man who fell to earth is primarily commenting on, like. Yeah. This is what they. This is what entertains them is this giant frightening thing. <laughs> well, it's funny because it's the first film Rogue uh, directed uh, in America, and 
it's he brought his own crew, and uh, so it, it's it. A lot of them uh, actually don't look now and at bad timing. Uh, walk about like they all have this same sense of of an English director's curiosity about the environment and like how a character who's also unfamiliar in the environment kind of navigates that and maybe has to change somehow to, to work within that new environment. Um, with, with Manifel to Earth, I mean, you could compare it to something like Paris, Texas, or you could compare it to maybe some of the Louis Malle films that were shot in America. Like as far as like a foreigner's perspective on Americana and it's not always as alien as the Man Who Fell to Earth, but it, it just gives it a different spin. Um, I don't know. Maybe that. Maybe that's what changed it. But performance, like it's almost more of a chamber drama by the second half. It's almost closer to The Servant or uh, even some Bergman films, even though it's more obviously a like a psychedelic movie. It's it, uh, it's um, it is performance his only like movie that primarily take because even performances about just a stranger in a strange land, though in this case it's just someone going to a different part of London and, right. and, and meeting a very different kind of person. But I, I was yeah. just thinking, like, all the films I saw, for the longest time, because Walkabout was the film, I didn't, for the longest time I hadn't seen any of his films, and because Walkabout yeah. was the film that I associated with him, I assumed he was an Australian director. And so, right. like, here's Walkabout takes place in Australia, there's Don't Look Now that takes place in Venice, there's... Um, uh, bad timing, which takes place in Vienna. There's the man who fell to Earth, which takes place in America. Uh, it it's it seems to be that's. Uh, it, does he have films that take place in England? Not many, actually. Um, the uh, Castaway with Oliver Reed starts off in America. I'm sorry, it st- starts off in uh, in Great Britain, but then it goes off to uh, an island and becomes kind of like a. Strange, almost Robinson Crusoe kind of. God, they, kind the, of, the Castaway could just be the title of any of these movies. <laughs> the cast, well, the Castaway, like that's the title of the of the uh, senior thesis that someone writes about Nicholas Rogue in film school is the Castaway, the uh, alienate the alienation pro, the alienated protagonists of Nicholas Rogue. Like, I'm sure somebody's written that term paper back in the eighties, sure. but uh, <laughs> back when people wrote about Nicholas Rogue yeah. term papers. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, it's funny because I watched everything up until the last feature, which was Puffball, The Devil's Eyeball, which is not as good as the title would suggest. And the synopsis, it, the, the uh, IMDb synopsis is terrific. It's It's got the only scene where you see sexual intercourse from inside a human body. Enter, enter the void. <laughs> yeah, oh, well, I mean, this I forget which came first. Maybe this one. Oh, yeah, that's true. This one could have come first. Yeah. Um, but it's... There's no. I was looking for the secret masterpiece of of the neglected years, uh-huh. and I, I didn't find it. Um, it's it's a, it's a strange thing with him because up until Eureka, which I don't know what you'd make of, it, you probably would find it exhausting also, but maybe fascinatingly. Uh, so it definitely has one of the worst courtroom scenes of any film. What makes it the worst um, courtroom scene? It's just awkwardly staged, and it goes on for. Is, uh, seemingly eternity, like it just stops the entire film cold, and it becomes really ridiculous. I'm trying to think what I could compare it to. It's like the worst, like the worst Spike Lee endings when he overreaches. And I love Spike Lee, like, like know, the Jungle makes, Fever ending. Yes, like it's like it's like that level of just like what? Why? Why did you just pull the rug out from the film? Yeah, but but that's the last one where his 
his cutting and his imagery and the violence and the sexual language and just the uh, just the daring is still really kind of going full bore. And that film was shelved and critically mauled and just it came out like a several years after he made it. And after that point, like something like Insignificance is quirky, but you get a sense that he's not got the same the same level of daring. And, and they become almost more like irritatingly comical and like a, you know, they they become a little bit more annoying at times. I mean I and I say that like still as someone that likes the films and finds them kind of fascinating, but they become a lot more off putting. Like you think that things like performance in the Man Who Fell to Earth might try your patience and the further down you get, like he he loses the critical fan base that he has because the films just become they just become very tricky, I, I, and not in a way that is you. you it, they're hard to recommend. Like they they have their fans, but they become they become very curious. And then after a while, it almost becomes like Altman's career in the early '80s, where he's making these odd, like filmed plays. Yeah, I mean, Insignificance was a play, but like the the invention kind of lessons, like they become much more conventional in terms of the shooting style. Um, and I don't know if that's just because he's getting older or because he's working with increasingly smaller budgets. I mean, it almost reminds you of something like Dario Argento, where it's like he's this kind of madcap, you know, visionary daredevil. And then then they just become bad and don't get good. And it's just like, what happened? I'm sure <laughs> like, it's <why>? exhausting. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, it, you know, even if you're not uh, making the big movies like Nicholas Rogue. I, I can't imagine any of these films are ever big budget movies. Possibly the Man Who Fell to Earth, just because of the scope yeah. of it. Yeah. But um, I, I'm even that uh, compared to other '70s sci-fi, it couldn't have been uh, too expensive. Like yeah, you I still th- have to get money for these movies, and I'm sure that either as a young man you're just full of piss and vinegar, and you're like, "Fuck you! I'm going to make performance," and I'm. And I know that when that screening happens, WB will be appalled, and there'll be lots of hand-wringing and yelling, and they'll play hardball with me for two years, and I'll think it'll, no one will ever see it, but eventually someone will yeah. see it and see it. It's great. I mean, uh, uh, Bad Timing was a movie where, like, when it, it, the, the company that produced it called it pornographic, and they were appalled yeah. by what he came up with, and... yeah. Um, you, you heard you heard what their 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 tag of it was, right? The uh, a sick movie oh, yeah. made by sick people for sick people. Yeah. Um, I I wish I wish it was uh, I wish it was that interesting. Well, I showed it to a girl, uh, a close friend of mine, a uh, uh, few weeks ago, and uh, I think she was taken aback by the ending with Garfunkel. Um, I mean, I guess we can spoil it. Sure. I mean, who is listening? But uh, the the scene where he's raping the passed out Teresa Russell character, um, who has passed out because she's OD'd on pills after. Yeah, she- and he's assuming that she's either dying or dead, and so that that scene was misrepresented in some things I read as necrophilia, which it isn't. No. But but I think when trying to sensationalize that film, that was well. Yeah, it's know, certainly what, when you're in the scene and you're watching it. It feels like necrophilia, even though yeah. later at the end of the movie you see that she's alive and well. So in retrospect, that scene is not a scene of necrophilia. It's still when you're watching, you're like, "Oh my god!" I'm watching Art Garfunkel commit necrophilia. 
What, what I love about our Garfunkel in that film is uh, it almost feels like an extension of the carnal knowledge character, yes. which is like, which is like this. It's, it's like the worst thing you fear about yourself. <laughs> If you're ever like the weaker person in a relationship, mm-hmm. like it's 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 all the worst qualities as far as the the passive aggressiveness and the and the condescending and the the wimpiness, like the the pulling away. I don't know. It's it's not an easy hero. To well, it's for. not. A, I mean, you don't root. If, as well, as yeah, far as I'm, I'm concerned, but, it's a movie about sort of gaslighting and just about um, like there. There's this woman who. This kind, that this kind of man, he's going to put all of his hopes and dreams into, and be like, you know, she's beautiful and she's sexy, sexy, and she liberates me, uh, makes me feel liberated in a way I've never felt before. This person's going to solve all my problems, and the reason yeah. this person is, you know, uh, so free spirited to begin, I mean, it's not a, uh, uh, not a quote unquote manic pixie dream girl or whatever, but it's kind of the yeah. same vibe as films that subvert that which is like the reason she's so free-spirited and wacky to begin with is because she has serious problems and when by turning her into an icon and turning her into this idol as opposed to looking at her as a real person with real psychology i mean he plays a a psychology professor in this film like in, in turning her into this totem he's sort of denying her her humanity and there's that amazing scene where they're walking up the stairs and it's well there's two amazing these of you walking up the stairs oh, yeah. and both are sort of about this one is where he comes to her apartment and he's you know he wants and to have sex with her and she turns him down and he basically is just like whining and begging for it and just being really pathetic and finally yeah. when he doesn't get it he leaves and she chases him out and she you know she flashes uh her him and is like look at this this is what you want isn't it this is what oh, you I want know. take it why don't you just take it this is what you want this is what you came for right like really just yeah. shoving what a shit he's being in his face and he's so yeah. dumb he just does it like he doesn't like he's not shamed yeah. by this he goes oh good i get what i want yeah no it's it's so tragic and then it what makes it even an odder scene is that rogue has the kaitel character going back to that location in another time frame and it's almost like he's a voyeur on their past because like he's lit almost like a horror movie and he's like taking in like his fantasy of their of their history um like he's on the staircase leering at what isn't really there and it's it's just an odd extra element to it because he's he's becoming and they don't i don't know that they overly uh underlines but like he's becoming obsessed with that relationship too like he's he's given a dress code that is similar to the Garfunkel character like they they start lightly making them into almost doppelgangers you know a la performance or something but like but they don't they don't go all the way with it like it's just another color to that film and that that to me is actually on it like i love Harvey Keitel in this movie i think his performance oh, is really good too. but i think his character is one of the weaker Parts of the of bad timing for me. I just yeah. I just think it's it's an interesting idea, but it just doesn't fit in a story in which he meets uh, Art Garfunkel's character, and then four hours later he's going to arrest him or whatever. And like it's it's such a short period of time, even with the way this movie plays with time. Yeah, for that it's, whole it's, arc to occur. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 an odd it's an odd element that I, I'd agree it doesn't it almost doesn't 
it almost makes the story like busier than it. It might be more effective if they didn't try to shoehorn it in. But I still welcome it every time he shows up, just because it's such an in- interesting way that he plays it, like that kind of sweet but almost sinister. But he doesn't really say anything too sin. Like it's yeah. I don't know. I just I, I'm just even just like happy to hear like the cadence of his like Scorsesean accent, like just kind of breaking things up and adding another. Because otherwise, you're stuck with Art Garfunkel and Teresa Russell. You know, for the entire time, and that's that could be exhausting too. It's almost like actually watching it this time. It reminded me like almost this is obviously a much more extreme film, the uh, Andrzej Zdrowski's Possession. But it almost feels like Possession, yes. the dating years. No, it, it definitely <laughs> feels like. I mean, it, it's in one it just because of the city it takes place in. It, yeah, but also it does feel like <laughs> Possession. Yeah, Possession, the dating is a good way to put it. And I, it's 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 always interesting. Because Harvey Keitel is such a strong force that you just sort of sit upright whenever you first see him on screen. He, like that's, I mean, Wes Anderson played with that beautifully in Moonrise Kingdom, where you, he covers up his face, and then when it's finally revealed, it's like a big moment. And 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 I love just sort of this idea that um, wherever whatever Harvey Keitel is in, he brings the movie to him because he's so strong. He has such a strong gravitational force that it's like, yeah. he's going to be in Last Temptation of Christ and he's going to have a Brooklyn accent. And he's <laughs> and he's going to be a police officer in Vienna and he's going to have a Brooklyn accent. Yeah. <laughs> and well, he... Uh, yeah, it just, it just sort of like, uh, the movie just got a little more Harvey Keitel. The Har- Harvey Keitel did not vanish into the movie. No, no. But I, I it's funny because like, he's... Like, that's at a point in his career when he's becoming increasingly hard to cast. Like, he... I think it's it's after The Duelists for Ridley Scott, and it's... I forget it's before or after... Uh, is it Death Watch for... Uh, was it Bertrand uh, Tavernier? He, he, like, he got fired off of Apocalypse Now, and then that timing is right after that. Like, it's like... It's almost kind of like the start of like, his wilderness years, in a way. Because he doesn't really get major parts again until... Uh, like the Tarantino and Bad Lieutenant and Jane Campion's The Piano, like uh, like that brings him back. And I guess Dumb and Louise, but like for a while he was really kind of struggling in terms of like doing roles that could be seen. And bad timing certainly didn't help because that barely got released, certainly in America. Um, but he brings, yeah, he definitely brings a lot of charisma to that role, which isn't really... I mean, I try to picture that with an unknown. Like, what did you think of the police captain in Don't Look Now? Since oh, I don't, I didn't think around. at all. He was just another Italian police cat. Like, Don't Look Now isn't really playing with Giallo, but like, <laughs> I've seen enough Giallo movies to have seen a million uh, Italian uh, detectives and police officers, and he just came across another one. He didn't really leave an in. Like, I remember going back and reading what people had written about it and talking about sort of the menace of that character, and I didn't feel it at all in Don't Look did Now. You, uh, did you read about how they got that performance? Uh, did he have to learn his lines phonetically? or? Yeah, he did not know one word of what he was saying. <laughs> yeah. Well, sometimes it works out. I mean, ABBA, they sang all their songs phonetically, I think, for like the first seven years. That's I did not know I, that. I think I... I it's a factoid. I can't uh, confirm yeah. <laughs> that. I've never read an, a biography or everything, but I'm pretty sure yeah. that like uh, those first dozen singles or whatever, she is just uh, singing phonetically and doesn't and didn't know English at the time. 
So I read your review of Don't Look Now, which I thought I thought was interesting. I know that you, you commented on the virtuoso opening, which is the most famous yeah. part of the film. Well, it, actually, I take that back. The, the sex scene is the most famous part. Yeah, but, that, but, I mean, it's almost like Blue Velvet, where even the bad reviews were like, but yeah, but the opening is so killer. Sure. Um, what... What did you? Was that the first one you watched up for this? Was Don't Look Now? Yes, Don't Look Now, and then Bad Timing. Those were the first two. Okay, having seen, you know, to to my mind, you've seen all the real essential ones. Mm -hmm. Um, What What do you make of of Don't Look Now? Now that you know where the style comes from and where it goes, like, do you feel like that's the most accessible one. It's definitely the one that seems to have the most mainstream recognition. It, that, see, that was the crazy thing to me because, to me, the most accessible one is bad timing. Because bad timing is just telling a straightforward story and bad timing has this tension to it. And, I mean, that's the thing about Man Who Fell to Earth, the first, like, you know, 30 or so minutes, you're like, what is his plan? What's... He's amassing all this money, and it's not enough. Like, not enough for what? And you're kind of with those characters trying to figure out what he's doing, and then slowly, it his. I mean, fitting the plot slowly, his uh, ultimate plan for everything just kind of falls by the wayside or gets disrupted, and it becomes sort of about the loss of that. And it and but yeah. the thing is that happens, and there's an hour left in the movie, <laughs> and. Well. And there's and there's no longer this uh, central question that's keeping you engaged the viewer. Whereas, like bad timing to me is just it felt like a really uh, coherent, other than the sort of Harvey Keitel presence uh, mussing things up. But it felt like a really coherent, ad- admittedly dark um, and graphically sexual, but uh, sort of just exploration of a relationship and and how uh, people can manipulate each other. And I think you, I think you also have the benefit of having grown up with filmmakers that have incorporated the editing techniques of something like bad timing, and that style yeah. doesn't throw you throw you out. No, of no, it. that's true. Accessible to me, it's certainly most accessible to me because I tend to like that elliptical cutting style. That's yeah, you know that. I think it was upstream color when I saw that in theaters. And I was, I'm like, oh, this is amazing. I have no idea what it's about. And the second time I saw it, everything kind of clicked for me at least for what most of it I thought I felt was about. And and after that, I was just like, I love how the story is told. I love that it wastes no time. And Primer almost feels a little too cut. Like, if you want to compare the Shane Carruth movies, like Primer feels right. too cut down to the point where, unless you have very good ears and can listen past the bad, <laughs> some of the bad ADR, like, you honestly yeah. will just actually absolutely get lost. And that's part of the fun of Primer is just trying to hold on as long as you can before you fall off. But, like, I... After Upstream Color, I'm just like, yes, this is how movies should be. Movies should trim all this fat. And I began to see scenes... If Unless it was, a, you know, deliberate to establish a pace or to establish, you know, it's a procedural. They want you to go through everything. Kelly Reichard wants you to feel every process of being homeless in Wendy and Lucy. And you want to see her writing in her notebook and you want to see her like walking around the grocery store and picking up something and then putting it back and these long streams that like, unless it's doing that specifically, um, I just, I love scenes that are cut like that. So it's true. Don't Look Now is probably the most accessible in which it's, as far as it's a more traditional story and it's more traditionally told, 
But the difference between bad timing and don't look now for me is don't look now uh, keeps playing with the audience, um, not toying with it in the way a thriller does, like not toying it in the way like Seven does, where it's like, oh, they're closer, they came closer this time, oh, they almost had him, but he fell off, you know. It, it yeah. toys with them in that it just wastes your time on all of these little tangents that are just like, uh, okay, so the two sisters, oh, that, well, they, we did notice earlier that they said that his wife looked exactly like their daughter, so I guess they were with their daughter, but you don't, they don't mention their daughter when they're in prison, and I, okay, I guess that's nothing, and he goes and lists, like, there's so many dead ends, and it just sort of, it, there are so few scenes that actually are like a build-up of tension and a release of tension, and Right. The way a movie like that generally plays, and you know, you, you mentioned my letterbox review. The way I described them in my letterbox review is the whole thing just feels like the labyrinth. Like it just feels like they're. And I mean, the Venice is <laughs> Venice is just a great effect in that they like there are literally just scenes of them getting lost on their way back to the hotel, or um, and, them take and to direct. I'm sorry to interrupt, but to drag it back to bad timing for a second, both our Garfunkel and Harvey Keitel have literal labyrinths that they put on their walls. Oh, I didn't notice that. Or at least I don't remember it. <laughs> yeah. But, sorry to continue. <laughs> That's, it's, it, well, I mean, if you're talking about a, a director who's mostly concerned with displacement, um, yeah. you know, well, that is a meaningful image, the, the, the maze. Um, yeah. But... Yeah. So don't look now that, to me. It doesn't offer the thrills a horror movie offers, like that you or you would expect a horror movie like this. Like there's no. Yeah. He's on the the scaffolding and he falls off, and it's not caused by a ghost. It's not caused. It's not like, oh my god, he's on the scaffolding and there's this figure that's watching him, and the figure's gonna make it. The scaffolding fall, and he just falls and he hangs there, and for for way longer than the scene needs to be, and. I mean, it's establishing a mood and tone, but it's not delivering the genre thrills. Thrills, I think, that the average person would uh, expect or desire from a movie like that. Whereas, bad timing delivers the story and the character moments that I think someone would want out of a story like that. Well, I think of I think of Don't Look Now, and I think of I think of a film like Blue Velvet, or I think of a film like uh, Blow Up from uh, Antonioni, where it's like. They're using the form of the thriller, but it's the concerns are not scares and thrills. Like yeah. it's just a more commercial framework to to sell the old concerns that they're more personal or they're they're more thoughtful. They're not really about Hitchcockian suspense at all. Uh, Don't look now. I mean, it has that ending. Um, and by the way, what did you think of that ending? Because that ending tends to create arguments too. Um. It's, I mean, so basically the whole reason, uh, let's go ahead and spoil, spoiler alert for the ending of Don't Look Now, and I will say it's a crazy ending, so it is, it is something that, uh, it's kind of fun when it catches you off guard. This movie is, do you, you ever watch that Bravo 100 Scariest Moments special? I, I never have seen it, but I hear people complain about it. Oh yeah, I love it. (laughs) It, the crazy, so it's a the Bravo Hunter scariest moments uh, sort of special. It's like a four part thing where they count down. It's it's called Hundred Scariest Moments, but it's basically just an excuse to talk about one hundred horror movies from. Right. And what makes it impressive is it's Bravo. It's a cable television thing. If it was any other cable television thing, it would be 
Um, 90% American, it would be 90% uh, after 1970, it would be, you know, 90% mainstream. And that Bravo special really does have a lot of clips from all kinds of movies, uh, you know, uh, you know, Italian movies and, and Japanese movies and all kinds of eras. And, and, you know, they talk in depth about Val Luton and then they talk in depth about Cabin Fever. Well, no, I don't think Cabin Fever is actually on the list, but that's the kind of... They have this, They have that scene from Audition. Yeah, they the, certainly uh, have the scene from Audition. Like, it's a really yeah. nice range and it's just... And there's like, you know, spooky music and you hear all these people talking about why they like these movies and you see all these scenes from these movies and it's just, it's a neat thing to exist. I like to have it on the background sometime during Halloween uh, while I'm mm. doing other things just because it has a, a fun vibe to it and it's and it's it's not the greatest piece of film criticism ever. You, they don't really dive deep, but you do have, you know, John Landis talking about all these movies and uh, other luminaries and it sounds like something I would enjoy, but does, should they have the ending of Don't Look Now spoiled yes, that? Yes, that is the... Basically what they do is they take the 100 movies and then they say, okay, well, what is the scene we can talk about in these 100 movies? It's a... Yeah. Um, and sometimes the movies don't have a scene like that, so it says 100 scariest moments in horror movie history, and some of the scenes aren't even moments. It's just talking about a thing that happened, or like just the vibe of it, or just talking about the themes of it, or why it's an interesting movie. But anyway, yeah. so the, I, I, I took that little aside to promote that because I, I think it's fun, but um, it yeah. does spoil the ending of Don't Look Now. So, But the ending of Don't Look Now, basically throughout this, uh, there's this B-plot going on um, where, uh, you know, they're, um, this, this married couple, one uh, restores uh, churches, um, and I don't know if she has a job. Uh, yeah. So it's this married couple, and she and and Donald Sutherland, and Julie Christie, and Donald Sutherland restores churches, and and their child drowns, and to sort of escape that, they go to Venice, um, just to be away. The other child is sent to boarding school, and they're just sort of trying to pick up the pieces of their life, and everything in Venice. I mean, <laughs> their child, <laughs> their child drowned, so naturally they went to the city that's surrounded by water. Um, yeah. so throughout the movie, they're just like looking at the shimmering water and it reminds them of how the water was shimmering on the day she drowned. And there's just these, these two old ladies who are visiting from England. Um, and one of them is blind. And so naturally she's a psychic and she's like putting ideas that like, Oh, I see your daughter. She's peaceful now. She's telling you it's everything's okay. And Julie Christie, uh, his wife is instantly comforted by this and she's feeling better. Whereas Donald Sutherland, the more, uh, "Quote unquote rational of the two because I don't know, I because the movie it's ambiguous whether or not there is actually a ghost or if there is if if these ladies are actually psychic, right? So maybe the the reality the movie's presenting is that what the psychic saying is saying is a hundred percent true and should be taken at face value or maybe not. It could certainly be interpreted that it's about a guy being punished for doubting. Yes, yeah. So. Throughout this, he's still lingering on. He won't let go the way that Julie Christie seems to have um, been able to let go, or at least is in the process of letting go in her many meetings with these two old ladies. Um, and But the B-plot that's happening is that there are murders occurring in Venice. So there's obviously like lots of cool shots as their boat is going by, a crime scene, and, and you know again, it's just evocative of their own child's death and... And they keep seeing this person in a in a red uh, like rain slicker, the same one that uh, their daughter wore. 
yeah. and the same one that appears in a photograph at the beginning of the, the best part of the opening of Don't Look Now is the way that water spills on this slide and and it just becomes this weird otherworldly blur like rainbow blur as the water smears the photograph like I don't know if the photograph yeah, it looks like blood yeah. yeah it looks like blood but it also is kind of shimmering so it has other colors to it so it looks almost like uh, uh, it almost lo- evokes the images you see in like old timey photographs where they've captured ghosts on camera and there are like balls of light and orbs of light and streaks and stuff like that. That's interesting. Yeah, I could see that. Like it kind of evokes that uh, sort of image, and so you know this red, this red rain, this person in the red raincoat, this little person in the red raincoat's been running around the city and been spotted by him, but. It's only brief flashes. He knows or gets contact her. At the very end, he runs after this uh, this person, and it's revealed to be an old lady uh, dwarf in the red raincoat, and she's the one who's been murdering everyone. And she slits his throat, and he dies. Yeah. Um, so thematically, the ending works because it's about his doubt uh, and his and his refusal to let go of his child's death, like that being his undoing. Well, it's it, the thing is. I mean, I, he's he's the one that doubts there's danger because he thinks that the old ladies are you know either charlatans or trying to put one over on his wife. Like he's he's initially happy that they got her out of her grieving. Like if if she's allowed to believe that the daughter is gone on to a better place, like that's something. He also thinks it's a lot of you know. He thinks it's it's bullshit. Like yeah. he does not believe that there's any uh, ghost of his daughter. Like he's a rationalist, and th- when he pursues the figure, he thinks he's he's protecting the child. Like he he blames himself for the daughter's death, and so he knows that there's a killer on the loose. He sees this shape kind of running, what he assumes is in fear, not knowing that he's chasing the killer. Oh, so I didn't. Why... I didn't get that out of that. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah, that's... I assume that it's just. <laughs> I assume that he needs to see her, and he needs to. I mean, the same way that he sees someone who looks like his wife, and granted, the person looks exactly like his wife, um, uh, to the degree that he doesn't even call England to see if she got that. right. Like he just knows it's her, and he just yeah. and. It's a very like they're a, they're like hun- over a hundred feet away from each other, and they're on boats passing opposite ways. Um, and but he just knows it's her, and he just sticks to this assumption that this is her, and he follows that assumption head on until, which is again, this is one of the little uh, corridors that the movie goes down and doesn't really end up anywhere. It's it's like a twenty minutes of the movie, or probably less, but it feels like twenty minutes of the movie is just him tracking down this person and going through all the rigmarole of getting a missing person's notice filled out and talking to police officers and explaining everything, um, and then like getting these two women to be detained because they must know where his wife is. And to me, the same thing is he sees this figure, and it's the same figure he saw in, in the photograph at the beginning. And it's the same, uh, it's this, because the red-coated figure is also in the photograph. That's what smears and looks like blood in the opening scene. And it looks just like his daughter. He knows it has something to do with it, and he doesn't know what. But his absolute refusal to just 
let go of it and realize that no matter what this has to do with any, it doesn't, it won't bring his daughter back and it won't fix anything. Like, he has to pursue it rationally. He has to be like, well, I have to run down all the open ends and I need to, here's a clue I have and I need to run this clue down until it kills me. And in that case, you know, it kills him. To me, this, I didn't think he was trying to protect the little girl. Maybe there is a line I just missed in which he's like... Well, well, no, no. I mean, it's ambiguous, but that's how that's how I read it. Because, like, I think when he when he finally corners the figure, he's like, it's okay. You know, I you know, I forget exactly how he puts it, but the way I read it is that he's he sees he sees the figure running in in fear, and he's there to protect the you know what he seeing is similar to the girl that he could not protect his own daughter. Um, but yeah, it is. I mean, the ambiguities of Don't Look Now are men. Yeah. Um, what's funny is I read the the short story, the Daphne du Maurier, and for one thing, there's no drowning in that story. She dies in bed of meningitis, mm-hmm. and so the whole drowning, beyond making it a more visceral death, also, like you pointed out, like makes the whole notion of a Venice trip that much more perverse because they're surrounded by. <laughs> Yeah, you know. To, to be fair, they're on that trip on business, so it could not not in the not in the short story. Okay, in the in in the in the uh, yeah. Well, in the short story, it's there's no drowning, and it's a, and it's a holiday. It actually starts off in the scene where they're out to uh, out at the restaurant, and they first encounter the sisters. That's where the short story uh, begins. Oh. Um, so everything leading up to that is is an invention of the screenwriters and Rogue. Um, but in the re- in the reality of the, the in the film, it's not yeah. like a perverse vacation that they're taking because it is just that's no. where the work has taken them. And exactly, yeah, it's, it's motivated by his occupation, and then they're they're trying to move on, and they don't really I don't know they really dwell too much. On the, the the water, you know, the Venice part of it. I mean, it's just it's just something that you pick up on as a viewer, but they don't ever comment on it. No, no, it's never no. it's never spoken. But there are plenty of shots of the sh- of the shimmering light on the water and that dissolving back to the day. Like it's it's not even it's it's pretty explicit that that's what they're thinking, even if the words aren't said about the water. Yeah. Um. What did you um, What did you think of the so the you, you mentioned the most famous part of Don't Look Now is the very uh, explicit sex scene, which is rumored to be an unsimulated sex scene. Yeah, that's bullshit. But yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's one of those. It's one of those things. That's like, yeah, it's possible, I guess. But it, it doesn't. I, if you don't see penetration, then it could have been simulated, and it would have been easier to simulate it. So it probably was simulated. Uh, I yeah. mean, even in even in short bus, where you see penetration, there's simulations going on, and like. Uh, in, yeah. you know, in certain scenes and stuff, just because of the legal nightmare of running a movie set, um, yeah. in which people are having sex. But um, yeah, the the weird thing about that is, knowing that it was coming up, and knowing mm-hmm. that it was the famous part of the movie, like I didn't really get much out of it. It felt kind of gratuitous, almost. Like it's interesting the way he edits. I I I, I guess I mean what I took from it was just. Uh, even in the throes of passion, it's a very passionate scene. Like uh, he edits between uh, their lovemaking and then getting dressed afterwards, and it's sort of about uh, what a. I guess it's like an attempt um, for them to 
sort of forget, but how they're not forgetting because their their minds aren't even on the sex. Their minds are beyond the sex already. Their mind. Well, what? Uh, well, what did you see? The thing is with that scene, um, I think that by the end of it, what you're seeing is is the Sutherland character is just like we've restored order and it's like a tentative positive kind of thing that he's going through. The Julie Christie character I think is trying to have another baby because she now is at peace with the fate of the daughter because she's been told that she's fine and she's laughing. So now she's, she's trying to get pregnant again. Uh, and so you look at her face and it has this kind of like kind of smile to it. Like, Yep. Now, now I'm now I'm back to restoring family. Uh, whereas the Sutherland character is just kind of like, I don't know. I mean, it's it's the way it's set up. It's like you, you, I like the uh, this. It can only happen in seventies films where it's just like just the the comfort around each other. You know, in terms of the nudity, um, the matter of factness of it. You know, that feels very European. And then um, the way that the sex scene is handled, it's like yeah, it's both. It's both very passionate, but it's also the way that it's intercut with that other character business, I think probably keeps audiences from feeling like they're watching literal porno, because I think that's the risk when you have extended sex scenes. Certainly American audiences are really uptight about sex in movies, and it usually has to either be uh, punished by a killer or end in embarrassment like semen in someone's hair or something. You know, it's like they don't really have a lot of married couples having sex um, in movies and it's usually like you know, a history of violence or like you know there's there's exceptions but it's usually I mean you mentioned uh, Crash uh, recently and it's like yeah I mean whether or not that works you know it's you know matter of opinion but like that's they're trying to tell story sure. beats through the through the sexual coupling I think with Don't Look Now um that's what's really going on and it's unspoken and it is that ambiguous I don't know that I picked up on that reading of it the first time that I saw it um, but that's what I think is intended yeah I, it, it does feel I mean it, it, it is long and I'm not complaining on a, uh, a prudish moral well, stand, just yeah. a, but a, more in just a uh, the, re- the reason sex scenes I mean, there is there is a there's another reason you could say sex scenes don't really belong in movies is because they rarely say anything about the characters. They they're often often they don't achieve anything that movies in the '40s didn't achieve by you know panning over to the fireplace. It's right. Usually, right. it usually is pretty gratuitous. Um, I mean, I, I, there are obviously I think Almodovar is really good at characters. You know. Revealing themselves through uh, sex scenes and stuff like that, and I, yeah. I think Rogue is pretty good too. But well, Rogue, Rogue, I, I think his freedom as far as like depictions of sexuality, ultimately, um, as his, his career goes on, he gets caught up in a lot more films that are marketed as erotica, which is kind of even more the kiss of death than going into horror films the way Ken Russell wound up doing in the 80s. Like, you know, as far as, like, the the renegade British directors of the 60s and 70s, almost without exception, kind of were marginalized almost completely by the uh, the Margaret Thatcher kind of era. Um, the ones that were really 
vulgar and sexual and, and groundbreaking. Like they they were bad news by the early eighties. And with, you know, with Rogue, I mean the the sexual component. I mean, he's mostly famous for, like, you know, the sexiness or the tricky editing. And, like, how do you sell either one of those, you know, in the 80s? You know, he, I mean, he, he was uh, doing Showtime, like, softcore uh, after a while. Like, uh, he did a movie called, like, Full Body Massage, which is, you know, it's like thinking person's milk porn. It's not bad, but it's, like, I mean, but it's, it's the kind of thing that people are embarrassed to even take, like, to seriously consider it. Sure. Um I, I, didn't that also kind of happen to Verhoeven where like Verhoeven's movie early movies had like an easy sexuality to them where sexuality is just kind of loose and fluid and then yeah. and then the only thing once he came to America the only thing they knew what to do with that was just like oh so it's erotic and you make thrillers so you're making erotic thrillers like well that's not, yeah. not exactly what I'm doing but that is the, what he had to do here with you know showgirls well, or basic instinct and stuff like that well and you can blame Joe Esterhaus for that sure, also sure but I mean but I mean yeah but, and, and speaking of showgirls there are plenty of people like uh, Jim Jarmusch and Jacques Rivette being two of them that defend showgirls as being the closest to his European films uh, as far as those that feel it's like a misunderstood film and not a you know Plan 9 from Outer Space kind of camp thing I, I actually watched that. And this is totally sidetracked. We can cut this out if you want. But like, the, I rewatched Showgirls recently, uh, right around the time that you did the Verhoeven episode. Actually, I watched most of Verhoeven's films because I thought, you know, that was one I hadn't seen since it came out, and I thought maybe it would wind up in your discussion, and I wanted to be fresh on it. And uh, it's, I don't. Did you watch that when you? I didn't. Did I haven't Verhoeven? seen Showgirls uh, since I originally saw it. Um, did you hate it when you saw no, it? No, I thought it was hilarious. I, I, I found it very entertaining. But I didn't yeah. find it to be the closest to his European... I, I didn't rewatch it for the episode, so and I got to know most of his European films through the episode. Yeah, I, I thought your take on Turkish Delight was really fascinating. <laughs> oh, man, Tur- wow. Turkish Delight is a very interesting... Uh, you know, the, the, I was actually going to bring this back around to performance. I was going to say the thing about Rogue that strikes me as different than something like Verhoeven doing Turkish Delight is, um, other than kind of in performance, like performance, a lot of it just feels like um, attacking uh, polite society um, in on oh, all yeah. fronts, from that weird opening where it's there's the man in, giving the court summary and he's talking about business, and I don't know who that character is or why it matters, but it just keeps <laughs> repeating itself and it keeps looping. Like, that whole sequence for me, I was like... If, if the rest of performance is like this, and there's and I can't find a plot in it, it's going to be real hard. And you know, eventually it sort of settles down to the point where you actually have a character and a story to follow. But like, like that yeah. that movie's kind of attacking polite society. But I don't think he's really trying to be edgy with his sexuality. A lot of the sex in uh, in in uh, performance is very just free, and it's and it's the same in a lot of these movies where it's just. Yeah. It's just honest about the way sex is. Well, and performance is also, I mean, a very key film in kind of... I feel like that is a major component of the bisexual chic of the glam rock, glitter rock era that's just around the corner. I think that that film... I mean, without it, I don't know that that whole movement emerges the same way. No, it's, it, uh, I, I could definitely see performance shaping David Bowie as much as David Bowie shapes Man Who, Man Who Fell to Earth. And, and Bowie took Man Who Fell to Earth because of performance. Sure. I, performance is 
when I, when I was like looking it up, uh, performance was sort of, apparently it's Rosetta Stone for a lot of English uh, musicians because uh, it's so frequently uh, just uh, sampled in their music. Yeah. Uh, oh yeah. Like the Happy Mondays had like seven samples from performance in like on one of their albums or something like that. Yeah. Uh, the, the English uh, experimental act Coil uh, had a song called Further Back and Faster that was taken, uh, based, looped around dialogue from uh, performance. I think that, that 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 film also, with its kind of like associations with like, I don't even know enough to find the Aleister Crowley or the, Bor- you know, the Bor- Borges. Like, I, I don't always find all of the dense literary kind of perversity in, in that film, but it's I think that that informs a lot of like the more fringe culture of experimental musicians. That film because it's it was the first of its type. I mean, that the English English films before that that era of filmmaking. I mean, it, you know, it's it's either uh, like very prim and proper, or it's like very much like celebrating kind of like uh, working class naturalism. Yeah. Like it's it's you yeah, and so. Like when Ken Russell and Nicholas Rogue and Lindsay Anderson, uh, and even like some like American expats like Stanley Kubrick or Richard Lester, like you know when they they kind of mix it up, especially Russell and Rogue, like the, the people were really offended by this stuff in like a way that it's kind of almost kind of cute now. Like you could see performance probably playing on Turner Classic Movies without a whole lot of editing, but like then it was just like. A real affront. Like people did not know what to do with that. Film. Yeah. Well, yeah, and and I guess what I was saying was like, it it certainly seems designed to attack that the sort of that tyranny of good taste and and stuff yeah. like that. But unlike something like Turkish Delight, it feels like I don't want to say honest because I'm not trying to imply that Turkish Delight is dishonest. But I don't think that right. Paul Verhoeven sides <laughs> with uh, with. Um, Oh fuck! With actor uh, Rutger Howard, yeah, I don't think he. Yeah. I don't think he finds the actions of Rutger Howard defensible. Whereas in performance, like uh, Mick Jagger, you know, sort of disappearing from the world, like that, just it, uh, you know, becoming a hermit and sort of disappearing inside himself. It almost feels like a reasonable response to all of the scenes we see outside of his house in performance. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah, I could. I never thought about it. But the, I mean, the thing that with with Rogue is also, and I think I talked about this with you before. Like the, he's like Altman in that he already had a life and a career like decades long before becoming a major director. So when he got his shot and had like kind of juice as a as a major filmmaker, like he had already. I mean, he was already coming from a, with a different sense of maturity. Um, it's and, and like and technical craftsmanship was already part of the package. Like he's not experimenting out of naivete with the equipment. Like it's not like he doesn't know how to achieve. The, like all the effects are deliberate. Yeah. Um, and like even just like the the outrage of something like performance or the man who fell to earth. It's I don't know. Like to some degree. Like I don't know if he's. I think on some level, when you make from like performance, you know you're tossing a bomb into the establishment, but it's, it's 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 odd. Like it doesn't come across like Harmony Kareen making gummo. Right. It comes, you know what I mean? Like it's not like an angry young, you know, middle finger to the to the man kind of film. Like it's it's more, 
I, I don't know if I even can completely comprehend the philosophy of it, but I do believe that its it, its intentions are philosophical as well as to shock, um, which is why it still is argued about. Um, whereas, like uh, something like I love John Waters even more, but I, Pink Flamingos isn't really discussed in the same way. No, well, Pink Flamingos, like Pink Flamingos, has a very specific objective. It's stated in its very premise of just, like, two people competing to be the filthiest. Like, yeah. it, the implication that John Waters, it, the, that Pink Flamingos is his, his entry into the competition to be the filthiest person, like, is it's yeah. pretty understood. And, I mean, the way it goes about fulfilling that is beautiful, but it's not a beguiling movie. No, no, it's, 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 it's punk rock, right. whereas per- performance... And actually, Rogue in general, I, I read that Rogue was kind of embraced by that punk generation in a way that other psychedelic hippie-type directors were not. And I'm trying to think why that would be. And I think it may be the perversity or the nihilism of those films. I mean, they're all downbeat. Well, apparently, also, uh, it's <laughs> apparently also just being so explicitly sexual means if you're a fucking horny young man... Um, and, you know, you can't, you know, uh, other than stag films, like, I, uh, I, I read, like, uh, things about Walkabout, where it's like, Jenny Augator's nude swim was just like, that's a very formative moment for so many, you know, oh, yeah. young English men who's, who saw Walkabout, and I could just see, like, well, it's like, well, if you're a teenager, and you want, and you're, want to dabble in art films, and right now you have, yeah, the, the Ken, I forgot about Lindsay Anderson in the context of this, but. Like you're probably going to uh, edge towards the ones with the sex in them, <laughs> and right. I, I can see just even that being um, more of an appealing uh, 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 um, sort of lure for that uh, for that generation for that sort uh, of person. It, I don't think it ever goes away. I think that David Lynch and David Cronenberg and you know uh, you, you can name all sorts of the big cult directors. The sexual component is a big selling point in a lot yeah. of them. <laughs> Um, but yeah, um, it's funny because Rogue, I mean, almost every film you watched ran into problems with censorship over the sexual content. Performance, Walkabout, Don't Look Now, The Man Who Fell to Earth, Bad Timing, all ran into problems with censorship. Um, and I don't even know if they're all available in the original cuts. Walkabout Now is, uh, and The Man Who Fell to Earth Now, when I first saw Man Who Fell to Earth, it was 20 minutes shorter. Wow. Do, do you know how they decided to, how to make the cuts? This might crack you up if you don't know. What? The distributor hired uh, a college professor and a bunch of college students to like take notes as to what they feel should be removed, and all the stuff with like the teacher fucking the students was removed. <laughs> that is weird. So the so the college professor he he he, he, <laughs> did, he didn't narrow in on sort of the many redundant scenes of of David Bowie and Agony or whatever. like he wasn't thinking about it structurally he wasn't thinking about it story or thematically he was just well well no some of that stuff was removed too like the uh, the shot of Kenny Clark pissing was removed the uh, I think one of the sexuals I think the scene with the gun with Bowie's uh, full frontal nude scene I think that was edited out um, and I can't remember to what extent the rip torn establishing scenes were intact or not but I do remember the first time I saw it I was just I mean as baffling as that film may be in its uncut version it's a lot less clear when it's like 20 minutes shorter um, 
But I, I think the first time I saw it uncut was on the big screen, and that was the first time it really... I mean, as much as it's going to make sense, because yeah. it, it, it has so many elements in it that are just meant to offer more information that may or may not communicate anything. Like when Buck Henry goes out the window in that film and says Ruth on the way down, there's no explanation for why he says that name. <laughs> it's just meant to make you think like, huh, I wonder who Ruth is in, in relation to the Buck Henry character. Like that's all it's meant to do. Yeah. Uh, it's um, I, From Man Who Fell to Earth for me, it was just so... You have this central story, and it's kind of, and it's not the most compelling thing. I, I guess I've never had found myself really drawn to David Bowie. I'm not a big follower of his career. He certainly is a beautiful and interesting looking man, but beyond that, yeah. I don't find him so instantly compelling that him doing anything is it takes on a beauty of its own. Um, mm. And so, a lot of that movie, it, without a coherent theme to follow to look at the movie through and without a story like there is a story but it's so slack and it's and it just takes its time so much that it's it's not i'm not watching each scene to find out what happens next and right um and i could see seeing it on the big screen just making all the difference because to be honest i watched it on amazon instant and amazon instant has a lousy player and so i watched it uh you know, not in the most uh, pristine cut. Right. So... Well, that, that could make a difference. I mean, I, I feel like a lot of them, you know, I think a lot of them benefit from a second view only because I think most good films do. Right. Especially films that are like this, like, tr- tricky narratively. I think the first time you watch any film, part of your brain is doing all of the processing of the scene's also uh, making assumptions as to what will follow and then being either pleased or disappointed with what actually comes. Uh, I think the second time you see a film, you are just accepting it for what it is. And it may still not work, but you don't have that extra, that extra kind of working on in your brain. You can just take it for what it actually is doing. Performance is the, one, the number one that I wanted to read that... Um, at least it had the biggest divide between amount I enjoyed the first act of watching it and amount I wanted to rewatch it because it wasn't one of my favorites. Like I think Walkabout was of the three sort of most beguiling films that I saw, which I would say would be like Walkabout, Man Who Fell to Earth, and Performance. Walkabout was the most accessible and the most I got out of it, sort of intellectually and thematically and. And I think a lot of that is just because it's such a nonverbal movie, and it's so. I mean, I'm saying it's visual is dumb because all of his movies are dazzlingly visual. But like, there's yeah. a there's a shot um, establishing sort of the picnic um, in which the inciting incident um, where the you know where the father kills himself and they have to go on the run. Like the mm-hmm. shot opens with a brick wall, and then it pans over across this Australian landscape and you see a car and that brick wall is sort of the last structure you see in the movie for a long time. Yeah. And what's weird is the brick wall is not explained. No, it's, it, it's it, not. It, as far as I know, it doesn't actually exist because the children are lost like in the wilderness and they're completely lost. They don't know where civilization is. The brick wall isn't part of 
Uh, I mean, the brick wall exists as much as the brick wall at the end of Children of the Damned <laughs> exists. <laughs> where it's just like it exists inside Nicholas Rogue's mind as a as a as a good shot, and he saw no yeah. need to justify it. And later, when you return to that scene, um, when the Aborigines uh, find the burned up car and they're playing on it and stuff, and you see it in wider shots, that brick wall is never seen. <laughs> it's he just he does. It feels like he composed this shot of. Uh, the the bright red brick wall uh, panning over to the Australian wilderness um, as sort of a way of implying like this is the last this is the very last part where society ends and and nature begins and this is where they have their final battle like this is where they're this is these are the this is the border and he had that idea for a shot and then when he you know when it comes to the story he goes well it doesn't make sense in the in the context of the story for there to be a brick wall at all in I, he just said, you know what, I don't got to justify it. It's a good shot. And the rest of this movie, there's a lot of uneven, you know, there's a lot of things that aren't going to add up. So, What did you think of the of the shot of the, and, and maybe it's almost too obvious a shot, I don't know. What did you think of the shot of them in the pool with the ocean in view? That was great. It's it's yeah. not too obvious because at that point the film hasn't really established its themes. It's, it's like in the opening five minutes of the movie. Yeah. So as, as sort of a... Um, you know, opening idea. Like, I love that. I love... There's a similar... A very similar scene in... Because, again, for the longest time, I was thinking about Nicholas Rogue as an Australian director. So I was trying... And and to be honest, like, between, uh, uh, you know, Picnic and Hanging Rock and Walkabout, like, I, I felt there was enough connected tissue. I was like, oh, isn't that interesting that it's in a, a, that, it, that it was something that was happening in Australian film at the time, which it wasn't, because yeah. it, it was an Australian film. But, like, there's a very similar scene in the beginning of Last Wave where someone is... It's, Which has the same star. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's pouring down rain, um, and a person is holding an umbrella, and under the umbrella they're leaning down into a drinking fountain, and they're getting a drink of water. <laughs> and it's it's this sort of pointing out the absurdity of civilization in a place as, you know, in a expanse such as as big as Australia. I mean, that's... The, that, that's such a common theme in, in Australian films or films that take place in Australia. The civilization, nature, butting heads, even if it's something like uh, uh, Hundred Bloody Acres or uh, Wolf Creek, um, yeah. like that—that that sort of idea. That's just you know, uh, you can pretend that there's civilization, but it doesn't actually exist. Society uh, breaks down at um, when you consider how grand the outback is. Um, so, like. For me, Walkabout, it, I mean, Walkabout was accessible because it had that, that ongoing theme, establishing that beautiful shot of the, the pool in the ocean that you mentioned. I love that. That was the first thing. Yeah. I, I sort of, like, stood up, and I'm like, ooh. <laughs> like, yeah, I, that, that, I get what Nicholas Rogue is doing right now. <laughs> that, like, yeah. That's a rare that, feeling. <laughs> that, was a, that was actually another one. The first time I saw it was in the theater. Um, and that was, I remember, that was the first shot that I remember uh, just being like, oh, I, I, I see why this is already one of my favorite things I've seen this year. Yeah, yeah. Um, did you like how the uh, father is, uh, the dead body is propped up in the tree and he looks kind of like Grandpa from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre? <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't notice the, the, the reference to Texas Chainsaw Massacre, or if it was a reference. Well, no, I mean, this is, no, it's not. I mean, this came before, but it just, right. whenever I watch it now, he just looks like Grandpa. But no, I like, I like that shot. Um also, I also just thought of the uh, father being crucified and set on fire in uh, Hills of Eyes. 
Oh, yeah, I, I can see that, uh, too. I'm sure his um, eyes took a little bit from Walkabout. Uh, you know, you're probably the first person to ever compare them, but I could I could probably see Wes Craven seeing it. So. Yeah. Uh, what what did what did you think of the uh, scene where the boy hallucinates the camels? Um, I, that was so. As the film goes on, um, and there, the, so it becomes the craziness of, uh, like if there's a lot of very pointed commentary in Walkabout, especially in the in yeah. the first half where. You know, she is in the middle of this outback, and on her radio, she's listening to lessons about which fork to use when eating meat. And she's chastising her younger brother when they're lost and they're wandering and they're in survival mode. She's chastising her little brother for taking his shirt off and or for like, you know, where's your hat? Put your hat back on. Right. Um, and and so sort of there's these all these pointed moments, and it's very easy to follow thematically, and it's. You know, and it has a compelling storyline, and it also kind of solves the Nicholas Rogue problem of unrelatable protagonists, sort of inaccessible protagonists, just because you instantly empathize for them and you want to see them safe because they're children. But, but do you not judge them also for their class consciousness as far as they're still kind of caught up in looking proper and not looking like tramps, and uh, and then once they're comfortable. They they start kind of treating the Aboriginal like a servant. Yeah, it's well, I, it it certainly uh, talks about that, but just in the context of them being their very rich father's uh, children, their mm-hmm. important father's uh, children, like in 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 the context of that, you can't really blame them for just sticking to that sort of thing. But I mean that that yeah. makes it a fascinating commentary that they again. Like, after he saves their life, and once they become comfortable with him, exactly, they start treating him like a servant. Like, they start to fall back into it, the idea that it's so ingrained in them. Um, they, they start to fall back into things. And then as it gets a little looser, uh, it, it becomes less sort of single-minded and, and pointed, and it gets... I mean, I, I could see it. people saying it gets more interesting. <laughs> as the film goes on, because it gets a lot, e- a lot less easy to say, "Oh yeah, this is what Nicholas Rogue is doing." But then there's the that wacky uh, Benny Hill scene where everyone's trying to, you know, look down the woman's shirt and look up her skirt, and yeah. and then there's the scene of all of the Aborigines making uh, quote unquote authentic ara- uh, Aborigine art on that farm, and it's well, what's it's interesting like, about that scene, what, what's interesting about that scene is that's a scene where. Uh, a white woman starts hitting on the Aboriginal teenager, and he kind of blows her off, and then goes back to the to the children. And it's it's not really like hammered over the head, but like he's seen white people before. Yeah. And the the they the children are like, oh, he's probably never seen white people before. And in the novel, he has not, because um, you hear his internal monologue, and he finds it so strange that you know their complexion. But in in this. It's just that the language doesn't allow him to communicate. Yeah, that. I think it gives him more dignity that <laughs> that he isn't just a as equally fascinated with them as they are with him. Yeah, because there's, I mean, the fact that we're not in his language, the fact that the that we don't, I mean, I'm uh, I'm assuming that he is an, an authentic Aboriginal person and he is speaking you, an you, authentic you, you, Aboriginal language. You cu- you, your voice cut out. Repeat that last sentence. I, I'm assuming that he is an authentic. Aboriginal person speaking an authentic Aboriginal language in the film, but 
There's no yes, subtitles. Yeah. The average audience member is not going to get access to that. So, right. It it sort of gives him more dignity that he isn't like, oh wow, white people, how fascinating. I this is great. Like he's sort of being kind to them and saving their lives, but um, it it doesn't. It, he's given a little just the fact that he's given a little more. Um, depth and background and intellect than that means that yeah. he's that it gives him more dignity. Um, and but as it goes on, it's like I, I I didn't know if it was ambiguous whether the children were even still looking for civilization because at that point there's this noisy ruckus of all these people making all this art happening very close to where these children are walking by and they don't notice it and they this white woman is calling to this guy that the children are with and they don't hear it and. I can't tell if that's meant to be like they're just that caught up in the adventure that they're unaware yeah. of it because I don't think they're supposed to be never not looking. The boy is comfortable with it. The girl is not. Yeah. Um, one thing I didn't notice the first time I watched it, but I noticed, well, I didn't notice this. I, I read this and it makes sense is that the fact that they're English in Australia, in a way it's already commenting on their ease at adapting into another culture, um, but this is, this is, it's not as easy for them to adapt into this even further removed culture, but it's, it's already in some way commenting on like, their ability to, to, to uh, adapt. Yeah. Um, I don't know. That's the... Uh, what did you make of the uh, fact that they're doing voice lessons at the beginning, <laughs> or like the breathing exercises? Like that's the first introduction to the character. Uh, yeah, it's just odd. It's, it, I mean, it's just, um, it, it, it's to me, it struck at the time. It just struck me as just that's another thing from their society, which is seems silly when you actually think about life as a struggle to survive. It seems pretty silly and useless, um, and. I don't know, like, the movie, it seems to just sort of imply that there's just a fundamental disconnect between people who never left nature and people who have never been inside of nature. Do you think that it's making a case that nature is better than civilization? Quote-unquote? Um, it's, it's making the case that it's more honest. Like, there is no, there's certainly no... Uh, a, civilization equivalent where you find where like it goes well sure there's sort of an inherent respect for the land when you have to hunt on the land and the only way you're going to get a eat kangaroo is by chasing down a kangaroo and it's a fight between you and the kangaroo and if you win then you can eat the kangaroo and you can live and the kangaroo dies and that's sort of just an honest way that you're interacting with nature as opposed to just fucking driving in and shooting something in the head from 500 yards away and then walking up with your big knife that was manufactured at a factory and cutting its guts open like and leaving the bodies yeah, and, because that's another thing they dwell on is like all the bodies that remain intact yeah in the, and yeah. it like it's sort of there's no equivalent where it's like yeah well but on the other hand aborigines have never heard mozart and mozart you know like there's there's no, there's no equivalent where you see like a museum or something like that so Better, right. better is certainly a loaded word. It's not like it's not as if Nicholas Rogue, after making this movie, uh, went off the grid <laughs> and and lived in nature. 
Um, no, well, I, I think it also, I mean, it points out how harsh the conditions are and doesn't, like, shy away from the insects right. and the, the oh, sun. Oh, God, the everyone is, and, everyone's yeah. covered in flies in this movie. <laughs> yeah. You know, that sunburn scene is, is Luke uh, Rogue's, that's his son yeah. playing the little boy. Uh, that's a real sunburn he had, and they just made a scene out of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that actually is really the the technique that they were using uh, out there to uh, address the burn. Yeah, and they just made a scene out of it. I, I believe it. That there's a lot about this movie that sort of more so than uh, I, other than maybe performance because I can see the performers actually being on drugs uh, <laughs> uh, during that. But like, there, it it he doesn't really uh, play around with the barriers between fiction and documentary in his other movies, but uh, in other... Uh, oh, and the explicit sex. The sex that is so realistic-looking that it, that it is purported to be unsimulated that other than that, like, there's no real that. But in Walkabout, there is that sort of documentary feeling, and it's... And I can kind of feel it almost being like, that's how you have to make a movie. Uh, like, Kelly Riker, when she's talking about making Meek's cutoff, was just like... The simplest, the seemingly simplest thing in the world, which is a movie that has maybe 12 actors in it, um, and no sets, and all the lighting is just using the sun and bounce boards, as uh, assumedly, and, and all, and you have four wagons, and those are the wagons you're using, and, like, it seems like, oh, that'd be the, a very simple shoot, there's so little to keep track of, but it just, oh no, it was the, the most complicated nightmare ever, because you can't actually live where you're shooting, so you actually have to bust there and back all the time, so everything you get, you have to get while you're there, and th- I imagine that just that sort, those sorts of conditions force you to adapt, and you can't go into a movie like Walkabout and assume that you're going to get everything you want to get, or it turns into Apocalypse Now, and you go mad. <laughs> oh, <laughs> like, yeah. And you end up adapting anyway. Uh, but first you go insane trying to get exactly what you want um, when really you should be living off the land, <laughs> so to speak. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I, I, yeah, I mean, the, I don't know how rough a shoot any of them... Well, I think in terms of the conditions of Walkabout, I, I don't know that it was... It certainly was not Apocalypse Now conditions, uh, but it was definitely probably a lower budget than... Um, something like The Man Who Fell to Earth or Don't Look Now, because it was the first feature he made. Actually, I think he tried to get that made before performance, and he was going around with like maybe a 20-page script that was written to him, uh, written for him by a playwright. Uh-huh. And uh, it was like very sparse, and nobody was like, this is not a movie. You can't, you can't just shoot this. Yeah. So I think, I think he went off to do it before performance was released because he went up to go do it while Donald Camel was like struggling over the editing of that. Um, so I don't know where the money came from. I still don't know where the money comes from for a lot of his projects because I don't think any of them have been commercially successful, um, at least in terms of theatrical box office. I think Don't Look Now got some notoriety but was considered kind of an underperformer because audiences were kind of scratching their heads about yeah. it a little. And then the, the Manual of the Earth, I think, was the most commercially successful while still being considered uh, too esoteric to really cross over. And then, you know, I think The Witches might be the only other one that people would have seen in large numbers, and I don't really know how large those numbers it's are. It's certainly not one of the better-known Jim Henson company. The Witches is no. not talked about like Dark Crystal, you know. 
No, but but I meet people that are not cinephiles that know. Oh it. yeah. Um, well, it, I, I, I yeah. The one uh, I remember, my older sister, uh, she's like four years older than me, so she was born like eighty three. She like for her, you know, she was seven or whatever when the witches came out. So mm-hmm. she probably rented it, you know, when she was eight or something like that. And to her, she said that was the scariest movie she'd ever seen. Yeah, well, the I don't know how you said you saw it as a child. Do you remember it at all? I uh, I saw it, parts of it uh, on television as a child, so I don't remember it at all. I remember okay. a wobbly nose prosthetic. <laughs> at some point, <laughs> at some point, uh, I believe Angelica Houston's character is yelling. And her face is kind of wiggling around, and I think her nose prosthetic looked a little bouncy or wobbly or whatever. And that's literally the only image that stays in my brain. I I read the book. I loved Roald Dahl growing up, so I certainly read the book a couple times. And uh, I love the the Roald Dahl uh, books in general. Yeah, that's one I never had seen before until watching the ones I hadn't seen before. for the uh, for this podcast, mm-hmm. and uh, it's 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 funny because it it really is one of the least characteristic films. Uh, it it opens the opening credits are similar to the opening credits of Eureka, uh, but that's really where the similarities end. Uh, it, 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 well, I, I say that, and it's I I can see some things that remind me of Track Twenty Nine, which. Um, it's probably a film that would make you really uh, irritable if you ever try to watch uh-huh. it, but um, it's not—it's not a film you've seen before. <laughs> uh, it's since you might never see it, I, I might as well tell you. It's—it's it's about a woman who uh, meets a guy that is roughly around her age that says that he's her son that she had given up for adoption. Um. And just, and then they start having like a weird psychosexual relationship, and you're, it's not clear if he's imaginary for a while. Um, and then Christopher Lloyd plays an odd husband of hers playing with toy trains in the attic, mm-hmm. and it's set in the uh, town where they shop blue velvet. <laughs> um, so it has that kind of North Carolina feel. It's 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 an odd. I don't know. It's a. It's a. It's like a. It's. I guess almost like a comedy, but it's. It's very peculiar. Um, and when people would write things about Nicholas Rogue saying that his films just got more and more odd and difficult, they would mention films like that. Uh, and Insignificance also, although Insignificance is a lot lighter than something like Bad Timing or uh, Performance. But I can. I can see how you might have. Not, not really been too enthusiastic to finish that one. I, I, I like it, but it's it, it's um, it, it's it's where you notice a shift in the films yeah. and they become a lot less. Uh, I don't know. I don't know what the word is. Like they become less dizzying, dizzy, dizzyingly dense uh, in the way that like the older ones are. Um, I'm trying to think. Is there uh, are there any other ones you want to discuss? I mean, we've we've hit again. I've only I only saw the five, so we, yeah, we we've, we've talked pretty at length about all this movie. I guess the only other thing I want to talk about was walk about with the ending because okay. as, as I was sort of implying before, like it gets weirder and looser and harder to interpret um, as the film goes on, and particularly. Um, the ending in which uh, the boy, uh, the 
the Aborigine uh, commits suicide. Uh, mm. I mean, it's a very powerful image because it's it's a it's a uh, it's a tree that's full of pears. So he's hanging there among the pears. Yeah. Um, and you don't you know you don't see the a rope around his neck or anything. You just see the lower half of his body hanging from a tree. Um, yeah, almost like almost like he's crucified. Right. Uh, yeah, because his arms are stretched out. And it's kind of unclear exactly how he hung himself because you don't, you know, again, you don't see any rope. It almost looks like he's suspending himself from his arms. Yeah. Well, what did you? All right. So let's 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 back up a little bit. So there's the the way the events flow. He witnesses the uh, cruelty of the uh, of the white man's slaughter of the animals. Then you see him laying around bones of the animals in the makeup. And then he gets up and does this dance for the girl. And then he, he does it throughout the night. Like, and she's just kind of blowing him off. Mm-hmm. And then the next It's a morning, weird dance. <laughs> yeah. It is very well, off-putting. It, it's very off-putting because it, in this movie where he's treated as just this full character and this full human being and just even a, comp- a complicated person or a complex person with needs and desires that he's not speaking and everything. Like it all, like that dance to me, like I just knew because of the context of the rest of the movie, it wasn't this, but it felt like the scene in the thirties movie about where the tribesmen come out and they have crazy fit pain on their face and they're doing a crazy dance, and it's supposed to be frightening and unsettling for the white people. And they're like, "Oh my god, right. this is their dance. This means they're going to sacrifice us." And it's right. like yeah, it it's felt like a King scene Kong in a in a super right. racist movie. Right. Well, but did you did you see it as a mating dance, or did you see it as a, a pre like a, like a uh, I'm gonna die, bury me correctly, Dan. Well, in, in retro, he's, he's got this. In retrospect, got, I guess it felt more like he was preparing to die, but at the time, it just felt hostile. And this was what, after the scene in which uh, he was kind of trying to finally uh, connect with her. Because there's a there's a part like earlier where you find out that him and the little boy have developed sort of a, a mode of communication um, using hand signals and stuff. And she has to ask the little boy to talk to him. Um, yeah. So, like, this was him trying to finally break through and communicate to her and um, assume, I, I assume, sublimate sort of their sexual, both their mutual sexual desires. Um, and she sort of blows him off. And so it almost felt like he had been rejected. And, and then, okay, and then shortly after uh, she blows him off, he sees... Uh, the, these hunters drive up and kill this, uh, I don't know, wildebeest, or I don't know what exactly what kind of animal it was. Right, um, but right. kill this, you know, beautiful animal, and it's sort of contrasted with how he used to hunt, and it's this moment where it just stops the movie dead, and 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 it's, and you see everything, like, the gunshot is, it, it's as loud, like, it's implicated that it's so loud, like, the entire earth feels it, and of course it's a very, you know, uh, expressionistic way of portraying sort of the betrayal that the gunshot represents of nature and stuff like that. Um, and it's sort of, and he witnesses this and it's this tragic, uh, traumatizing moment. And it's almost this moment of disconnect with him. And to me, the dance felt like him retreating away 
from sort of the olive branch that was the relation, the olive branch between, um, I don't want to say nature and man, because he, again, he's given a dignity that he is not just an animal. He is, you know, the Aborigines are not treated like, oh yeah, they're just an animal on the land, just like any other animal. They just are treated like they are people who live, you know, with nature. Um, so it's sort of, it's, and sort of his relationship with the two children are is like this olive branch between those who live, those who live uh, coexist with nature and those who don't coexist with nature. And mm-hmm. that moment with the hunters sort of feels like uh, it severs all that, and he retreats back um, into. Uh, and this, and this is the the part where it sort of made me scratch my head and be like, oh, is this racist? Because. <laughs> like, he retreats back into a stereo, like, what feels like, like, a really untasteful comic sketch about that featured tribesman. Like, it's not like a, like a drawing in a, in a Mad Magazine comic from the 60s. It would have someone painted up like him, dancing around like him, sort of threatening white, a uh, white person like him. Yeah. Well, you mentioned that this film feels the most like a memory yeah. of any of the rogue films. And so you could also argue that that scene might just be how she's remembering it now in the kind of wistful daydream that she's having at the end. Um, she might have seen that moment at the time as something exaggerated and threatening more than it really transpired. I mean, it's it's meant to be interpreted, you know, more, I, I think when I first saw it, I read it as you know, a mating dance that he kills himself over the rejection of it because he does not know how to process the rejection. Uh-huh. Um, the more times I watch it, the more I think, yeah, it could just be he's 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 uh, reacting to the slaughter of the animals, or even just that the uh, the walkabout ritual that he's going through is meant to prove that he can survive independently of anyone else. Um, that's part of the cultural tradition. And so when he is, you know, living with other people, he's essentially violating that. That's an interesting, that's an interesting, like, so he, he was betraying himself in even helping them instead of seeing them as competition. Yeah. And so in a way he's sacrificing himself by saving their lives, taking them to food and water but he's violated his own rite of passage in in interacting with that's him. that's that's it's that's interesting both because it fits and it fits the general rogue narrative of the protagonist who's sort of this almost Christ-like figure who um who falls uh due to the uh due to the sort of corruption of man uh, oh yeah, man who fell to earth is certainly you know doing the same. I thing. mean, in performance, in a way, like he through yeah. his hallucin, you know, through the hallucinogens, he's sort of almost rehabilitated. It's implied, and but he, but he, and he saves himself, but that's not enough because of you know the inherent corruption of man, and uh, I, I guess bad timing doesn't fit into this as much. <laughs> bad, <laughs> no, bad timing. No. He is the inherent corruption of man. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much, Garfunkel is corrupted by the time we. Yeah. Him. Um, one thing that uh, is fun to watch if you want to just psychoanalyze Rogue is his relationship with Teresa Russell. 
because um, you didn't really go deep into the Russell films. Um, I mean, you got uh, bad timing and insignificance. Mm-hmm. But it, it's funny because, like, he was... I want to say he was 50 and she was like 22 or 23 uh-huh. uh, when they got together. And it seems like no matter what else the films that they did together are about, they're also kind of about how he's dealing with that relationship. So you look at Bad Timing and it's like you have her leaving a guy his age uh, and uh, becoming involved with the Garfunkel character because uh, Denim Elliott is the same age as, as Rogue. And it's kind of like this, you know, he's sophisticated and he's he's just, you know, sadly giving up because he cannot be controlling. Like, he has to give her up. Mm-hmm. And then the Garfunkel represents all the worst controlling elements of a man. Um, you get to Eureka and it's like all these different men and how they interact with Russell, it almost feels like... It feels like he's trying to always work out his kind of relationship with this much younger woman, uh, the way that uh, Oliver Reed interacts with a younger woman in Castaway. Um, even you get to th- something like Cold Heaven, which is a really frustrating film about a woman who her husband is, is suddenly killed or not right as she's about to leave him for another man. But it's like always like... They become like less fixated on like these, you know, Christ figures or whatever. They become more about male-female relationships, and actually, I don't know if that's what makes them like less interesting to critics than the ones that are like more epic in scope, because they just become about um, male-female kind of dynamics for for a while. Um, but they all seem to be kind of. Some critics say that like he just fell down a rabbit hole of obsession with this woman, but I don't think that's quite fair or accurate. It almost feels a little bit misogynistic to to portray it that way. But like, if you, you know, it's funny. Like you look at the Woody Allen films with Mia Farrow, and it actually feels like the closest comparison. Even though the Woody Allen films don't feel like obsessive over her, but they definitely feel like I'm going to give this woman I love all these showcases because I'm a great director I'm going to show the world that she has all this range and it feels like Rogue is always making sure that he gives Teresa Russell a different type of character to play some of them very strange um, but it's the same thing where like he's taken her out of maybe a mainstream career but to give her these vehicles that she might not have in the industry at large um, I don't know I mean it's definitely something that if you ever find yourself really bored and wanting to go through the later Rogue films, uh, it's something you can watch for. Yeah. I don't know if you find it as interesting as, as, the, as, the, uh, as the ones that you did cover, which I, I, think, I think you watched all the ones that I would say if you want to have an understanding of why Rogue is a cult favorite, those are the films from performance to bad timing. Eureka is the only one I would say is close to necessary that you didn't watch, but Eureka is frustrating. Um, but it has... It has things that kind of... There Will Be Blood feels a little bit like Eureka. Um, if you ever do see it, watch for... It feels like the, the, the ugly missing link between Citizen Kane and There Will Be Blood. <laughs> that's a, that's a pretty big link. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, as far as like a uh, 
kind of the miserable rich. Sure, yeah. The- uh, thematically, I, I suppose it's not so. <laughs> so I, I was thinking just in terms of time and 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 uh, formal, <laughs> like oh yeah, formally, yeah. Like, no, no, but no. For, thematically, formally, that makes sense. Thematically, it, it feels like it. Uh, formally, it feels like the last gasp of the of the old rogue style, mm-hmm. for better or for worse. Um, but yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I think I'm, I'm glad that you, you know, you could at least, I mean, do, do you, even with the ones that you didn't care for as much, do you at least appreciate the risk entailed in that storytelling approach? Oh, definitely. Definitely. I mean, especially, yeah. especially yeah, just I, like performance being a late sixties movie and not a seventies movie. Like, you know, once you get to like around bad timing, it, it became a little harder for me to see what all the fuss was about because at that point, throughout the 70s, there had been films that were more nihilistic and um, darker and more sexually graphic. And, like, it didn't seem to me like, oh, like, this this is a film that would cause a big stink. And then you, you had told me that it, it didn't necessarily cause a big stink. No. I mean, it, 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 it got some flack... But it, it, for the most part, was shrugged off, uh, and it, it, you know, you you know the whole story of the of the new Hollywood. Yeah. Because you read Easy Riders, it, in a way, he's almost kind of like the British counterpoint. To Absolutely. That. Uh, and at the same, and, and even though drugs didn't take him down, the the, the difficult nature of his work, just people like he just fell out of fashion, I mean, and it happens to English filmmakers kind of more seriously than I think even American ones. I mean, someone like Peter Greenaway at one point was like a really big director and his films barely get released here now. Um, I don't know if you've ever watched any of his stuff. I, I don't haven't. know what you would... Yeah. You would either really like it or really find it... I, I could see you really hating I, it, but I mean, it's definitely... Peter Greenaway definitely, did The Cook, The Thief, The Wife. Yeah. Bar- I, that, I think, that's on Netflix. I should probably watch that sometime soon. You should You should check. I'd be curious. You might, like, appreciate it just as visual eye candy. Whether or not you find it too up its own ass or not, I don't know. I mean, it's definitely... He's definitely a director like Kubrick where it's, like, so meticulous that it almost feels like all the air is sucked out mm-hmm. of it. So you have to... I mean, you talk about, like, engaging with films that are, like, overtly intellectual. I mean, you don't get more intellectual than Greenaway. And it's, so it's, but it's with a painter's eye. So it's like, everything is like very conscious of tableau. It's like, if you took the visual imagination of someone like a David Lynch and then grafted it down to like a, a Michael Haneke kind of like level of severe intellectual kind of, uh, pessimism, huh. that's, that's what you get. And it, whether or not you find that kind of like intriguing or torture, I mean, you know, Greenaway doesn't get real. I mean, even the Cook Thief, it's like I think in like uh, rights limbo right now. I don't know who's got it on uh, Netflix because I, I I know it's on their streaming, but I know Criterion had it had hinted that they were doing it, and then the rights uh, fell into some sort of hole, and I don't know who. Owns Sp- it, speaking but. of uh, getting their films released now, do you know if Nicholas Rogue is working on more? What was the when was his last film made? Um, I want to say it was like 12 years ago, Puffball. Okay. It, if, it, if it wasn't 12, it was, I mean, I, I want to say it's give or take 10 uh-huh. years. Um, and I, at this point, I mean, you didn't know, uh, 
He was, I think he was born in 2029. Okay. So he's, oh, wow. So he's, yeah, so he's like, he's alive, but I don't know who trusts him with the funds for another feature. Right. I'm sure he like, would like all, to make Altman one. Altman could make what is one last movie on his deathbed, but they're not going to do that to Greenaway. Well, they're not, they're not too Altman, rogue, I'd rather. Well, Altman had Paul Thomas Anderson on set for insurance reasons so that Paul Thomas Anderson would finish uh, Prairie Home Companion right. if Altman died mid-film. Like, I don't know. I mean, there are famous directors that love Rogue, like Danny Boyle or Christopher Nolan would probably like to do that for him, but they're busy, you know? And I don't know... I don't know, like... He's not had a film that has been treated as a return to form in forever. I just don't think anyone wants to take a chance on him. And when he passes on, I I keep waiting any day now to read it, because it's just, you know... Sure. He's he's on in years. Um, I think that... You know, the early films will get reassessed. I mean, even something like Performance, which was really contentious, is pretty well respected in in, in a lot of circles, not all circles. Um, but I don't think that the films past bad timing or insignificance are likely to get reassessed as like, oh, we didn't we didn't get it at the time, but now we we see that you know two do deaths you, do, or do you mind that? Do you do you like? Like, would you wish that he was a director who, once his sort of major works were done and he sort of just, would you wish he had stopped making movies altogether? Does that bother you that, like, the, the, that the career of Nicholas Rogue will always be in an arc that is sort of trickling downward? Or do you just, do you just like uh, when directors just keep making movies? I think I prefer the latter because I don't care if, you know, it's not the most consistent body of work. If the, I think if he's getting satisfaction as an artist making new things, then I think he's earned the right to continue creating. It's subjective whether or not I think they're good or not. I mean, there are people that like the later films, but I don't. Tone on a hot and dusty night We were eating eggs and sammies When the black man there drew his knife Oh, you drowned that you in Rampton If you washed his sleeveless shirt You know, that Spanish-speaking gentleman The one that we all call Kurt Come now, gentlemen I know there's some mistake How forgetful I'm becoming now you Fix your business straight. 